0: welcome to another episode of m Rants. As always, I'm Tannen Grace, your host, along with the other host. Uh, what's your name again, buddy? Um, no, um, you're trying to be clever, don't be clever, just answer the question. It's... Um, <laughs> Lost Merriam? It's something like that. Yeah, and I'm um, joined by uh, Ross Merriam. I was going to say curmudgeon Ross Merriam, but you're actually like, all got a pretty good mood lately. You know, you've been smiling a lot, you've been having some good times. Well, I think uh,
1: taking a mini vacation has helped you out. Yeah. But now we're going to be back to the hair pulling the, and the yelling in the in the nitty gritty. Yeah, the, the NBA <laughs> okay. playoffs start mm-hmm. you know officially tomorrow. The last playing games are tonight. Yep, we're, we're playing in one this on, of them on Friday. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, and you actually have a much better shot now if you saw the news today. Yeah, no Paul George. Yeah, Paul George out with COVID. So, uh, yeah, that now that game gets a lot more interesting. But the, the Jazz are playing the early game, first playoff game, so Saturday, 1 p.m. Eastern. Um, so about 2 p.m., 3 p.m. Eastern, I should expect you to be hammered and very angry. Uh, well, th- it, it's, it's going to be pretty high variance because if they win, obviously I'll be happy. But if they lose, I'll be extra mad because Luka isn't playing for Dallas. Okay, I want to point out that was not a no for everybody. At home. <laughs> so if they do lose, things will turn south very quickly. Yeah, yeah, I figured. Because it. losing to a Luca list Mavs team is yeah, that's not excusable.
0: That's not excusable. Yeah, yeah.
1: exactly. Uh, so the the good news for Utah is that the Jazz got this early schedule, so like that gives Luca the least amount of time to recover from this calf strain. And calf strains are notoriously tricky. They're just kind of day to day, mm-hmm. feel it out kind of injuries.
0: I've had that one before. It
1: sucks. Yeah, so uh, you know the, the apparently the the awkwardness and the reason for scheduling it th- this early had to do more with the NHL. So the the NHL has is coming to the end of its regular season and has a ton of makeup games to squeeze into the schedule because of so COVID they to, earlier in their season. Okay. So the yeah. Dallas Stars are using that stadium a lot it's in the so, next week or two. So wild. <laughs> so they had to like fit it in awkwardly like there's there's a Stars game Saturday night so they had to do the early game on Saturday and they wanted to start it early so they could get all the games in by like the next Monday. I didn't look at the the nitty gritty details, but apparently that that is coming in clutch for Utah to try to have Luca miss as many games as possible.
0: This is so ridiculous. It reminds me of um, I can't think of the exact situation. I have to Google it, but if I remember right, there was like a Major League Baseball team that lost a home game because they they had a concert in their stadium that night, and somehow they like double booked or whatever. And they're like, well. <laughs> we're bringing in, like, millions of dollars of revenue in this concert. We can't, like, say no. You know, this artist is here, like, blah, blah, blah. So, like, they had to move, you know, a game to either neutral site or go play in the other stadium <laughs> or something. I was just like, this is bad or whatever. But and speaking of sports, as I'll say, baseball season has started. Um, I try not to overreact to, like, the first week, unless your team's, yeah. like, 10 or something, and you're just like, we're the best ever, you know, kind of thing. But uh, we were playing, like – uh Not good right now, but it's early in the season. It's one of those things where, um, you know, you can point to a couple different things. It's like whatever, you know, like I'm not I'm not sure, you know, about a few things. It, It takes like 60 games before you realize like this
1: is who we are kind of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I, would, I would say, yeah, 50, 60 games, like a third of the season.
0: Yeah. And like, there's a stat. Uh, I'm trying to find it right now. I had it like saved from last night. Uh, there's a stat that we had this exact same problem at the beginning of last year where we started out really slow and bad and we ended up winning the World Series. But, and I'm going to explain the stat a tiny bit. So I'm going to read this to you. The Braves pitching staff has given up the second lowest average exit velocity in baseball this season. So for everybody at home, what that means is if you take all of the games played and you take. The average amount of speed that a ball has left a bat against your team. So when your team is pitching,
1: so that's how hard the this opposing is on team balls is hitting. And play, your of course, right? Right. Yeah.
0: Well. Yeah. Or well, home play.
1: runs, but not fouls.
0: Yeah. This is this is all in balls and play. So, out of every team in the major leagues, we have induced the second most soft contact in baseball. That's that a usually good thing. correlates. To, yeah, it's a good thing. That usually correlates. Your your pitching staff is very good. People are not hitting the ball very hard. They're not barreling it. They're not hitting it solid. That makes it easy to
1: get to the ball and catch it.
0: Or get yes, and we have a very very good defense, like very good. So like when people aren't hitting rockets everywhere, like it's going to turn it out. But we've also allowed the fifth highest average on balls in play. So what that means is while we're everyone's hitting the ball the like second slowest possible they are finding holes at a rate that is not, like, it doesn't make sense, Yeah. right? Like, the ball is ba- just...
1: Batting average on balls in play is, like, the canonical example of variance in baseball at this point. And it tends to average out over the course of a season. Usually, you know, a, a hitter, depending upon their speed, will have a sort of batting average on balls in play they usually get to. Um Pitchers tend to average out right about 300. So 30% of balls in play end up hits, 70% usually end up being outs. The defense behind them can adjust that a little bit, Um uh, and, you know, there are some pitchers that pitch a little bit more to contact. And so there's a, a little bit of variance there, but less so with, than with uh, with hitters. But, you know, like, you know, 50, 60, 70 games into the season, you'll see some players, especially hitters, that have batting averages on balls in play over 400. And you know that's going to come down at some point. And guys who are at, you know, 200, 250, and you know that's going to come up some point. Uh, you know, if you, you know, if you play a lot of fantasy baseball, then I'm sure you're aware of this because that's like one of the critical things when you're making trades like, okay, this guy's gotten lucky. This guy's unlucky. Let's, let's try let's to figure out how to, yeah. yeah,
0: how to take advantages. Yeah. And yeah. so that's that, Ross made a very good explanation. Here. That is one of the ways of showing in baseball luck, like quote unquote luck. Obviously some of this is like, you know, you hope it averages out like mathematically, like quote unquote, it should doesn't have to like you can continue to get unlucky like that is a thing that can happen. But on average, over 162 games, it's going to average out. And so when it starts coming the other way around, because like we're the opposite too, like we have plenty of guys and like hitters can point to this when, they've ha- when they're they having a bad time. You know, they're like, oh, well, I'm not striking out a lot. I'm, I'm putting the ball in play and I'm barreling the ball. Like we got one guy on our team who just got his first hit last night and he has like nine barrels this season, meaning like he hit a ball at 100 miles an hour or more off the bat which generally translates into good things eight or nine times this year. And, and the only one that fell into a hit was not one of those. He like popped one up into the exact like Bermuda Triangle yeah. in between three defenders and it just fell in. And he gets the first base, you can see he just does this. He just puts his hands up and he's just like, what What the hell? You know, I've been barreling balls. Also, there's a, there's a thing going on this year where apparently there's been a humidor put into every stadium in Major League Baseball. So this will be the third year in a row that they've massively affected the ball differently than the year before. And so players are getting kind of mad because I've I've watched every inning of every game of the Braves game so far and there's been multiple times someone's hit a ball and I'm like, yeah, that's 15 rows deep. And it's like either barely over the wall or like it's caught at the wall. And I'm like, that ball just died. And you see the hitters too, like they'll hit it and you see them like, what the hell? You know, kind of thing. But I I am excited. I think it's starting today. I get my first World Series memorabilia coming in. And did I tell you all the ridiculous stuff that i had
1: to do to get what i wanted Uh, you didn't okay i just know you wanted to get more and had to restrain yourself
0: i did restrain myself but here's the thing i made sure to get like the specific things that i wanted and i didn't let price get in the way unless it was ridiculous you know i was like i want this like blah 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 so um i think i might have mentioned this to you i got a jersey of one of my favorite players and it's a world series jersey meaning like it has the patch on the arm yeah. That has like you know says World Series champion. Uh, they did a different thing, so it's the normal jersey, but all of the stuff on the jersey, so like the, you know the Braves name, the numbers, the the MLB logo, the the World Series logo on the arm, they're encased in gold. And normally I'm not a big fan, but it actually looks amazing, like on especially on the 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 jerseys that we have. So I ended up getting a Ronald Cooney one. When I ordered them, there were none left in my size, but they had a medium because uh, in baseball jerseys they run pretty big, so I get a small. Cause I'm a, I'm a thinner guy and I want it to fit me. I don't want to be like, I don't want it to be a sweater. Yeah. You know what I mean? No, I'm the same. If also, if I ever go somewhere and I'm wearing like a sweater and I want to wear my jersey or my jersey over the hoodie or over the sweater, you know? So, and, uh, so I ordered the medium and then my friend, Wilson Hunter, everybody at home, you kind of know who Wilson Hunter is, even though you might not recognize the name. He did cardboard live. Uh, he's a gigantic brave fan. We talk almost every day about Braves baseball he randomly messages me on like thursday like the day before opening day and he's like made a wild decision bringing the uh bringing the boys down to atlanta for the weekend we're going to opening weekend right and so i'm like hey if you can could you do me a favor and he's like sure I'm like are you gonna go into the like you know the, the shop there and buy stuff and he's like yeah you know obviously i'm gonna get my kids some stuff and i'm gonna get myself a jersey you know because he's like me he hadn't bought any of the world yeah. series stuff yet and so i was like if they have this jersey in my size Can you buy it for me ship it to me and i was like pay for for all of it he got the last one in the stadium so i got the jersey one in the size so when the other one shows up i have to just ship it back immediately and get my refund or i'm gonna ask my buddy who lives here i got a buddy who lives here like hey do you want this if you want it you can have it otherwise i'll ship it back and then um i don't know this uh, some people may have seen this i think i retweeted it on twitter did you see the world championship rings that the braves made i did not they are the most ridiculous thing you have ever seen ross so I'm yeah, going to try I mean, to explain just a little bit. They said they wanted to break the mold and, like, set a new standard. For one, the ring has 755 diamonds in it. It's a lot of diamonds. The amount of home runs that Hank Aaron hit in his career. True, yeah. So yep. there's a lot of little things like that. You know, and they're like, we wanted the ring to be tailored to us, like, blah, blah, blah. But one of the most ridiculous things, so the ring is freaking gigantic. And, you know, like, if Ross yes. also looking at me right now, so it's obviously gigantic. The top portion of the ring, you can kind of, like, unscrew it and it opens... It's it's like still attached to it, like kind of it's like a like a door almost, right? It has yeah. a hinge and it comes off. Inside the ring is a replica of the stadium, <laughs> right? With a ruby, a bunch of rubies in certain spots where all the home runs from the World Series were hit, and it has functioning lights from <laughs> the stadium inside the ring. <laughs> They're the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. Well, the reason I'm mentioning this is on Monday's game. The first 40,000 fans that showed up got a replica of the ring. And I don't know if it, like, opens up, but you got this big, ridiculous replica of it, right? And I was like, man, I kind of want that. And so I was, like, talking to my buddy about it. It's like, you know, Brian Bisocco, we talk about this all the time, him on the show. I was like, man, I kind of want one of these rings. Should I just, like, wait till they're on, like, eBay or whatever? And he goes, yeah, but they're probably going to be, like, really expensive. Like, people are going to, you know, gouge that like crazy. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. And then I'm sitting there, and I'm like, Ross, I know somebody who lives 10 minutes from the stadium. So I call my buddy and I'm like, hey, what are you doing that night? And he's like, going to the gym. And I'm like, if I buy you a ticket to the game, like, would you go? And he's like, Yeah, I might go. Or whatever. And I'm like, look, I'm buying you a ticket to the game. I'll pay your gas. Go there, get the thing, ship it to me. I'll pay for all of that. You can stay at the game. You can not. If you want a beer, I'll buy you a beer at the game. Like, just give me the bill. Yeah. When it's all said (laughs) and done. And he's like, all right, cool. And so he got a ticket, you know, he got a ticket for like really cheap, like, went to the game and he's like, oh man, I forgot how good like beer and a hot dog is at a game. I was like, I'm glad you're having a good time here's my address send me the bill whatever it's said and done and this is you know way less than I'm what i'm gonna pay you know trying to yeah. get the damn thing offline or whatever so i was like this is pretty cool this is the same guy that um when they won last year without even telling me he like he messaged me and he goes hey send me your address i'm sending you a present and i was like okay and so like a week later in the mail i got this thing from him and he sent me the the local newspaper like you know like people always have those like uh up on yeah. their wall in the frames he sent me the local newspaper of like you know the, the whole front page is pictures of the Braves celebrating so i was like all right this guy's the best. <laughs> Good old Jacob bags. Everybody if he's listening at home, I love you buddy. Thanks thanks for hooking me up. But uh, that's enough about sports and everything else. I think the reason people want to hear us talk this week. We we talked about this last week. We ha- do we have the, the the entire official spoiler? I feel like a couple cards have leaked to today.
1: We we have everything. We've everything. So this what is what
0: Friday seen. at about 2 I'm sorry about 3:30 Ross's time. So, 3.30 Eastern. What we're going to do is we're just going to go over the entire spoiler today. And then next week, we'll have our actual top eight. Something we have a little more time to digest. Because Ross and I haven't had a ton of time to look at the entire spoiler. We didn't want to rush that. And also, we kind of just want to talk about a lot of these cards. Because I know you're excited about this set. I'm excited about the set. A lot of flavor. A lot of really cool stuff going on. A lot of powerful cards. And there's always something about these multicolored sets, right, Ross? Like, aren't they just always, like, kind of cool?
1: So, his- historically speaking... Artifact sets have led to very bad metagames, and multicolor sets have led to very good ones. That's almost like they, they do that, not, not on purpose, but it just it's just the way cards are designed. Well, I, I think what ends up happening is um, artifact sets l- lead do, to do homogeneity... They...
0: Do you think it has something to do with like the ease of casting? Like artifacts are generally yeah. easier to cast, and that, and that
1: homogenizes the format because when you, you you're like you're build you're designing an artifact set. You got to push some artifacts. You know, you got to make the skull clamps and cranial platings and smugglers' copters and um, you know, scars of Mirrodin did lead to. So for years, I pointed out that every single artifact set led to bans, and scars of Mirrodin is a bit of a technicality, but you know. Sort of feast and famine was sort of the the straw that broke the camel's back, even though the real broken cards were in Zendikar block, uh, in in Jason Stoneforge Mystic. Um, but the the thing with yeah artifact sets is the ease of casting you know homogenizes the format. We saw that with Smuggler's Copter and Emerald, um, you know the Promised End, and the, and the, your mana fixing tends to not be as good. There's, there's not as much of a reason to put good mana fixing in, and that actually makes it hard to combat really powerful strategies because it limits the optionality that players have in the metagame. Um, and that's actually, I think, the underrated reason why energy decks were so dominant is that they had really good mana, and so they they were much more flexible and adaptable as metagame shifted. And That's why, you know, oftentimes the energy decks weren't the best on week one, you know, um, you know, saw, like, control decks do okay, uh, and, like, the, the Azorius, like, midrange deck was doing really well. I remember Joey Manor top hitting that Pro Tour uh, with that deck. And the the Marvel decks took a little while to tune, and eventually people figured them out, and they were dominant. And then, you know, the next Pro Tour happened, and it was all Scrap Heap Scroungers and vehicles and things. And eventually, people figured out the 4C Saheeli deck, and that was dominant. And then, you know, Zombies won Pro Tour Cat. And uh, eventually, you know, the Marvel deck was, was the best again. And then over the summer, I think, the Red deck won the Pro Tour. So, like, the Energy decks didn't win a single Pro Tour, but by the end of each season, they were just the best thing to be doing.
0: Uh, it did technically win Worlds, right?
1: Yes, Seth, yeah, Seth Manfield yeah. world win, but yeah. Worlds was the end of the metagame, right? Right, right, right. Uh, I'm saying
0: it technically, it te- didn't win yeah. like a Pro Tour, but it technically won something sure. at the end.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. So, and it was because of it was really because of Etherhub. You know, a tune got what ended up getting banned, but like Etherhub was really busted, uh, and was just way better than uh, anything else. Sp- Spire was okay, but they did, again the artifact decks only had Spire. Renegade map wasn't anywhere close to the, the power of a tune. Uh, so, really, sort of the, the combo of the two. Uh, there's a little bit of hardest Lightning, I think, in there. Um, just having the best removal spell in in your energy deck that no other deck could really
0: leverage. Yeah, they mentioned that when they were talking about it. They were like, this was one of our mistakes. We didn't realize this was just Terminate. Yeah. Like, they, when they were built, you know, they are like, we didn't think this was just going to be two mana. Like, a colorless and a red kill target
1: creature and it ended up being that. Or sometimes kill a creature generates some extra energy when yeah. you're killing a small thing. And, and that's also important. So... Um, I, I think that's happened a lot in in artifact sets. You know, sometimes it's just busted things like Skull Clamp and Affinity, mm-hmm. um, but that that stuff is like easy to make busted. You know, cost reductions by one uh, when it's a colored spell. You know, have a sort of hard limit depending on how many colored pips are in the co- the mana cost. Artifacts don't, so you end up getting free spells, and that's busted. Uh, so that's another issue with artifacts. But, but multicolored sets, if you look back at it. You know, original Ravnica, I still maintain is my favorite standard, you know, environment. It was Kamigawa Ravnica, uh, you know, 15, some, over 15 years ago now. Um, but, you know, the Shards wasn't great, though Shards was an awkward multicolored set. Um, and even that, like, honestly, looking back, is probably a little bit better outside of the three months where Jund was busted until they printed Gideon. Um, and then, you know, the next multicolored set is what, Return to Ravnica, very popular formats around rtr um you know rtr theros maybe a little bit less so but um Innistrad rtr certainly then uh cons you know very popular set as much as people like to rag on siege rhino like wouldn't you love to go back to a siege rhino format right now where people are playing yes. temples and coursers yes. and siege rhinos <laughs> like uh so uh, yeah the uh the multicolored sets—they tend to have very good mana fixing, which m- makes y- your, your it makes it opens up options for everyone. And but the existence of all these multicolored cards makes it hard to fit all the really powerful cards into one deck. So you you ended up with Abzan versus Jeskai versus Mardu, um, you know, and maybe some of them get left by the wayside. You know, Teamer was never particularly good, um, and, and things like that. But you know, you at least have a, a lot of options there, and then you have some options to go, you know, single color or two color uh, and still utilize the mana fixing to, to some extent. I'm, I'm a little bit worried about this set just because Triomes are incredibly powerful mana fixers, um, and that could lead to homogenizing if you're able to go, like, four or five color a little bit too easily, um, you know, which we've seen with Triomes in Pioneer with uh, Niv-Mizzet. Now, like, is there a big payoff for doing that other than getting a few more powerful cards of different um, houses in into your deck? That remains to be seen, but that that worries me a little bit here. Um, but outside of that, yeah, you know, once again, it's just a set with a, a ton of interesting cards. I think that just happens now with how, how much text is on everything. Like, it's just so difficult to parse a card that has five different abilities or, like, three different options on it, you know, exactly how good that is, so... It all comes down to, you know, we'll wait and see and, and test it out. But, but we'll do our best. And, you know, we're never wrong, so. Ever. Our, our best is pretty good. Never, ever, yeah. ever wrong. When your best is perfection, you know, hard to do better.
0: Yeah, it's hard to do better. Uh, so speaking of those powerful multicolored cards, do you want to start with uh, looking at the spoiler or looking at, like, let's say the Ascendancies, you know, cards that I know that you're a big fan of?
1: Yeah. Um, I think the Ascendancies look uh, pretty sweet. I think the last time we did a last week's show, we only had the Bant one, Broker's Ascendancy. Mm-hmm. So let's um, take a look at the the other four. Let's do Yeah, that. let's let's. Uh, I'll just go right to left on the screen that I'm looking at. So the next one would be Naya, which is Cabaretti. Again, uh, the pasta
0: ascendancy, as I like to call it. Yeah. <laughs> it just sounds like a pasta. It makes me hungry every time it, it, someone says it. It definitely
1: sounds like a pasta shape. I'm, I'm with you there.
0: What do you, like, I mean, you can see me, and right everybody at home is like, what do you want? I want some cabaretti. You know, <laughs> like, you got to do the hand thing. Everybody at home knows the hand thing I'm doing. Yes.
1: So, little cavaretti bolognese.
0: <laughs> it's very good. Yes. <laughs> continue. Sorry. It's sorry, like Parmigiano Reggiano. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Did you have to hear this? All right, anyway, go ahead, go ahead.
1: This one's at the beginning of your upkeep. Look at the top card of your library. If it's a creature or planeswalker card, you may reveal it and put it into your hand. If you don't put the card into your hand, you may put it on the bottom of your library. So
0: I'm not sure how I feel about this one because like Naya in this set feels like it's a token kind of thing, though it does seem like it's creatures making tokens a lot. So like in your typical Naya decks, like this seems pretty good, right? You know, creatures, planeswalkers, stuff like mid-range but yeah. I'm not so sure about this one. What about you?
1: Um, so it seems to me like a one of those classic like cyborg cards against the control deck, where you're yeah. able to land it early, and now you have slow. this you know stream of threats. It's uh, you know that it it very much reminds me of the minus one on Dom or the plus one on Domri, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And Domri was an excellent threat against control decks in the day. Now it's easier to deal with you know different permanents like this. They have like March of Otherworldly Light if they want access to it and other flexible removal spells but could definitely be a reasonable option there the the thing i particularly like about it is that you get to put it on the bottom if it's you know a land that you don't need Um, or you know if you're digging for a land and you reveal one of your few instants and sorceries you can put that on the bottom too so even if you don't hit you get a little card selection so it raises the floor you're not just, you know, building... That, that means that you don't necessarily have to go as deep with stuffing your deck with creatures and planeswalkers to make this card good. Um, you know, I think the the floor of drawing half a card and scry one if you don't draw a card is, makes it a lot easier to reduce that half down to, say, 0. 0.4 and, and still be good, because you're compensating in the other 60% of the time with a little bit of card selection, so... Um, the, the main issue, though, is three mana is a pretty key turn. There's a lot of really powerful three mana plays. Um, and so th- this is really going to take a, a pretty big tempo suck from you, and you're hugely incentivized to play it as early as possible to, you know, get as many triggers as, as possible. So uh, I'd be worried on that aspect, which is why I think it's more of a sideboard card than anything else. Four games that you know are going to be slow, and your opponent has lots of cheap removal, so you curving out isn't, you know, uh, a consistently viable plan um so that's where i see this one i think it's a, a reasonable sideboard card and you know we'll we'll see it pop up from time to time but not much more than that
0: yeah i gotta agree with you everywhere there let's take a look at the jund one this is the riveter's ascendancy uh this one is the one that scared me the most until i read the last line <laughs> yeah. oh god if, if it ended up the last line it would be
1: boston <laughs> yeah it's so
0: already at home this is an enchantment for black red green It says, when you sacrifice a creature, you may return target creature card with lesser mana value from your graveyard to the battlefield tapped. Use this ability once each turn. Uh, So, obviously a pretty powerful ability. The thing that kind of gets me is uh, it does look like we're going to have yet again another black-red sacrifice theme going on in Standard. It seems to be what they've liked over the last few years and how it works. We'll see if the green can kind of fit in there. Like you said, there's going to be Triomes, there's going to be dual Lands, so maybe the mana really isn't that big of a problem. I just wonder if you can get enough value off this card turn after turn after turn to make it worth taking that time off to cast a 3 mana enchantment. Because generally the Sacrifice decks are a little bit slower than the other like creature aggro decks. Or you know they might not be able to uh, put enough pressure right away on like the control decks to make them have to interact with you and they can do whatever they want for the first few turns of the game. This is another card that doesn't do either one of those things. You know, it doesn't speed up what you're doing. It kind of slows you down even more. So I think that's going to be like, it's going to be a push-pull thing here, right? Like, is this card powerful enough to make up for the time that I have to
1: cast it and putting it in my deck? Uh, Yeah, there's also a a pretty significant deck building cost with it. Right. You know, when you think of sacrifice decks, especially ones that are sacrificing creatures, you you tend to see very low curves, you know, you want to be flooding the battlefield so you can get lots of creatures on there and your sack outlets and your payoffs as quickly as possible and start getting that engine online. Now, this is a pretty powerful engine in and of itself, but it does force you to build your deck with a much wider curve going up to, you know, four and five mana cards, at least in small numbers, so that you can maximize the Riveteer's Ascendancy uh, you know, when, when it's on the battlefield. Then in games when you don't draw a Sentence or your opponent destroys it immediately. Now you're stuck with a much clunkier version of the same deck. So there's a question as to whether or not with the cap of only being able to get the trigger once per turn, now no- notably it is once each turn, not once on each of your turns. Mm-hmm. So you get when sacrificing is mostly instant speed, so you can do it on your turn and their turn. Uh, so twice in a turn cycle, which is significant. But I think the biggest cost here is in how it's changing how you build your decks. Uh, you know, it's going to be harder to be like a collected company deck if you want to do that. You know, when I think of the creature heavy sacrifice decks in Pioneer, they're playing collected company and they're playing Priest of Forgotten Gods and Woe Striders and things like that. Um, and the other sacrifice decks, they're not even really sacrificing creatures anymore. They're playing Anvil and sacking artifacts or sacrificing food and using that engine with Trail of Crumbs and, and Gilded Goose and things like that. Um, but like, you know, if you're going to try to rebuy things like Mayhem Devil, you need four drops in your deck. What, what are those yeah. even going to be?
0: Yeah, I, uh, I don't think that's good.
1: No. And and do you want to sacrifice your four mana creature to get your three drop back? Like, it's got to be a four drop that comes with significant value. May, uh, I'm sure there's like something, you know, I think of, um, I think of like splicers you know yeah. Uh, okay you know, like that would be great with this card like but they don't, they don't they don't that. exist in pioneer it's yeah. not powerful enough for modern but that's the kind of card that would really make Riveteer's ascendancy look a lot better um but there's definitely you know we've seen an effect like this do some good stuff in scrap trawler um that's a good gra- point granted that was you know in a in a, a form or in a template where you could trigger it multiple times a turn um, but there's some pedigree here. I'm a little skeptical for the reasons that we've talked about, but you know me, I'm a sacrifice guy, so I'm definitely yeah. going to think about it.
0: You're a sacrifice guy. The last thing I'm going to say about this, and you kind of you kind of hit it in like your overall point, and I kind of wanted to condense it with, when I'm playing a sacrifice deck, I want my cards to either be cards that sacrifice something or are being sacrificed, and this card is neither one of those. And I want the fewest amount of that possible in my deck, of actual bricks and stuff, so... That's something that kind of gets me with this card. It's a good point. Yeah. So the next one, Grixis, uh, Masteros Ascendancy. Is that is that how you're pronouncing it, Maestro's?
1: Um. Sure. That. Ma- Maestro's. Like, Just Maestro's sure. Ascendancy.
0: Yeah. Sure. It's blue, black, red enchantment. Once during each of your turns, you may cast an you may cast an instant or sorcery spell from your graveyard by sacrificing a creature in addition to paying its other cost. If a spell cast this way would be put into the graveyard, exile it instead. I love this effect. You know me. You might be the sacrifice guy. I'm the blue-red spells guy. Like, this is my favorite thing to do. I'm not seeing it with this card because you still have to pay the full cost. It doesn't reduce in any way. It doesn't help pay for it in any way. You're paying the full cost of the card, so you can't, like, cheat a spell out in any way with this. Um, I'm not sure I see it with this one.
1: Yeah, this is a plotting card advantage card, and these tend to be, you know... Similar to the the Cabaretti, you know these tend to be cyber cards at best because they just take so long to get going, and they're only really useful in games that you know are are likely to take you know six seven eight nine ten turns, um, because that's what you know, and, and you're not going to get run over really quickly, and unlike Cabaretti, which just requires you to build your, uh, which is, it's pretty easy to build your deck to maximize it, you know just play creatures and planeswalkers. In this one, you've got to have this weird balance now between creatures to sacrifice to it and creatures that you want to sacrifice to it, and then spells that you want to recast. So if you think about the you know, recast spells part of the effect... That's more of your, you know, typical control deck. You're recasting all your removal spells in your card draw, and you're using that to get even more spells in your graveyard and keep casting them. Those decks play very few creatures, and the creatures they do play, they sure as hell don't want to sacrifice.
0: It's usually like an 8-drop that ends the game, or a 7-drop
1: yeah. that ends the game, or something. Yeah. So, like, what what exactly is the deck that plays this, like, what is the deck that plays this card look like? You know?
0: Uh, yeah, exactly. That's the thing, is, like, I'm trying to find it in my mind. I'm sure someone smarter than both you and I. We'll figure this out. If it's a card that gets played, I'm not seeing it right now.
1: Yeah, like there needs to be certain bridge cards, whether, you know, it could potentially be be like a Hordling Outburst kind of card. Uh, Like I I don't know if one exists around here. Uh, You know, maybe you've got a Planeswalker that just pumps out tokens and that becomes your sort of two card engine. But now you've got two cards that are kind of like not that great apart, but pretty good together, which is a little sketchy. But, so, th- th- there's just a lot that you need to balance here, and so the, the deck building constraints, uh, while th- they aren't obvious, are pretty severe, and that makes me kind of down on this card.
0: Yeah, exactly. Right there with you. Alright, and the last one, this is the Esper one, so white, blue, black. Uh, it's enchantment, obviously. It says, whenever you cast a spell, if its mana value is equal to 1 plus the number of soul counters on this, put a soul counter on it, then create a 2-2 white spirit creature token with flying, as long as there are five or more soul counters on this, Spiritual Control will get plus three, plus three. So this is one that I could get behind. This is one that I, I could see maybe getting played. Maybe not in Constructed. I could see myself playing this one, like, limited and trying it out. But this is one that gives you a tangible thing and is, like, re- repeatedly usable for the mana cost where after, you, you know, after you've activated this, say, two or three times, like, I feel like I'm getting my mana's worth for putting this card in my deck. I'm not sure I'd want to actually... You know, take the time to do this. I'm sure some people will try this out in spirits decks. I don't think that's the way you want to be going with those decks. But this one, this one's interesting and cool. cool. Again, though, I think these are all just a little underpowered for constructed for me.
1: Yeah, my, my issue with with this one is that you have to go up the, the curve. You can't skip any steps. So you, look, to get the first counter, you need a one mana value spell. Then you need a two-mana value spell, and then a three-mana value spell, then four, then five. So already you're now required to play, you know, this uh, very wide curve, and. You're, you're normally you're going to be playing your one and two mana spells on turns one and two and you know use your mana efficiently so are you are you gonna skip a turn so that you make sure that you have it for this ascendancy when you untap on turn four or are you going to just curve out normally and hope to draw more ones and twos in which case you got to play a good number in your deck and then you know, now now you got to hope to have your you know fours and fives. Are you going to wait on casting those powerful four and five minute spells and just kind of do some mediocre double spelling on turns four and five? Um, you know it, it it fights against the way I naturally want to play a game of Magic, and that's usually a, a big red flag for me. Whereas cards that play well as I just naturally play a game of Magic, I think the canonical example being Tarmogoyf. You know, ever, ever when Tarmogoyf first you know got. Discovered when people realized that this card is pretty powerful, everyone kind of went out of their way to add different card types. You saw a lot of you know chromatic stars in decks because they figured like, oh, it's a chromatic star, like you know, it's not going to cost me very much and it'll pump my goys. And we pretty quickly learned that like two mana four or five was good enough, and it was pretty easy to just get to four or five.
0: Yeah, you, you know? didn't need to do all this extra. You didn't yeah. need to do all the extra work. That's yeah. that, and that's the thing with this. That's why I say I don't know if I see this in these decks because it just it requires so much extra, like. The- to do the
1: the question to me will be you know how good is this card when you trigger it two to three times in a game because that's probably what you're doing in most games so if i if i get two or three tokens out of this is that does that make it a good card uh like maybe but i don't think (laughs) so so uh the ones I wanted to go over next
0: is if you're following this on the spoiler on Mythic Spoiler, that's generally the site that we use, and so the card's right above the ascendancies. It's just a it's like a I wanna say that this is like kind of a cycle because they're all costed in a similar way. It's like a creature that is also kind of like an ascendancy for their their guild-ish thing. I don't know why I said guild, but you know what I mean. So like all their mana costs are weird. Like let's start with this one. Start with we're gonna go back the other way, so we'll start with the Esper one here. So the mana cost—it's it, very strange. I'm gonna—it's—it's—it's it, it's, it's hybrid mana, blue, white, blue, and hybrid mana, blue, black. So it's either triple blue or like you can splash some white and black in there. Yeah.
1: So if if you look at the Esper, you know, color combination, blue is the one that is friendly with the other two colors in it, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas right. black and white are enemy colors. Mm-hmm. So in this case, so they're all their the mana costs are going to follow that pattern where. There is a hybrid mana of each friendly combination, and then a regular mana of that middle color.
0: Yeah. So, like, this one's blue, like, the next one's black, the next one's red, etc. All right, so this one's a legendary creature, human rogue. It's a 3-1. This is a Tulos Clever Conductor. I have n- I, the, the names in this. Holy crap. All right. Anyway, when it enters the battlefield, convene, and we're, we're, we'll read this... Did I say convene? Connive, yeah. sorry. It's very small. I'm dumb. Anyway, I'm trying to read this for everybody i hope they remember what it does because I don't remember half the time. Draw a card, then discard a card. If you discard any non-land card, put a plus one plus one counter on this creature. It says, whenever you discard one or more cards, exile them from your graveyard. When this dies, put the exiled cards uh, with it into their owner's hand, and that's all of them. So this is one of those cards that uh, it's going to take a little while, but it can really build up some card advantage from you. And it's a creature like your opponent's not really going to want to interact with. the the One pro- one of the problems I'm seeing here is it does say when it dies. So if, if your opponent exiles it in some way, you get kind of blown out.
1: Or they bounce it, or, you or know, they bounce it. effect, yeah. it or anything it like le- that.
0: Yeah, it doesn't say leaves play. So this is a card that I can see people playing with maybe having outs to kill their own creature in some way in response to, like, your opponent exiling it or something like that. So... A uh, pretty prohibitive casting cost for a 3-1 body that's, like, pretty fragile. They can kill it with the trigger on the stack and if, stuff if, like that. If a you're lot a three-color
1: deck, this is a pretty nice mana cost. You have a you you have a lot of options. You know, the, guild, yeah, the yeah. guild mana actually makes it generally easier to cast. And the interesting thing to me is that the way they're all templated, you can cast these in mono-color decks. Tolus can be a mono-blue card.
0: Yeah, so, like, if you're if you're, like, a Devotion player or, you know, something like that, like, one of these cards might be able to fit into one of your decks... Because, like we said, there's the option of just casting them. You know, each color has one, or it's a triple of the color, and this is the blue one.
1: Like we said, and uh, I, I like the connive mechanic. I think you know, I'm always a fan of getting some immediate value, uh, especially you know if you're a deck that can utilize the graveyard. You know, um, then cool. The a little awkward with this one actually. Uh, I so, so in general with Knave you know, cards that utilize the graveyard, nice, but uh, totally specifically because it exiles it anyway. Um, so this is sort of a, a standalone card to me where you're going to actively want to discard a, a non-land card, You know, maybe discard your, your six drop that you know you're not going to cast for a little while. Now you've got a three mana four two, reasonable body. You're going to put pressure on your opponent. And when they use their removal spell, you just get your card back. And now you've effectively drawn a card. Uh, you know, So I, this to me, I think just plays well by itself. Obviously, if you have other connive... Triggers in your deck or other ways to discard cards, and suddenly Tolu's has three, four, five cards under it, even if two of them are lands. Um, and then you know, you're looking, uh, really good. It's sort it's a it's a bit like an Esper, Bomac, Courier kind of card, right? Um, oh, so you're saying it's a card that's gonna be
0: great for my opponents and awful for me every time? Okay, cool. <laughs> that that good was mat
1: Courier for me as well, so yeah, um. But I, I, I like this card. I, I I remember when we were going over the uh, Rafine, the the their like big mythic uh, in Esper. You know, it made it seem like Esper was going to be more creaturey than it has been before. And this is another card along that line. Like, you know, we're looking at a, a sort of aggressive um, archetype in a color combination that normally doesn't have it, which I always find uh, kind of fun. Um, and hopefully, I'm. Um, I just kind of hope that it, it ends up panning out.
0: All right, let's move on to the Grixis one. This is Evelyn. Uh, she's a legendary creature, vampire rogue. She's a two five of four. Sorry, that's Evelyn. Is it Evelyn? <laughs> no, <laughs> I
1: was going to say,
0: c- come on, man, don't get me look. I- for everybody at home, I have like 17 <laughs> things up while we do this, and none of them are full screen, so I can see everything. So shut up, Ross. I hate you. I just knew that, that was like the easy one to pronounce, so I was yes. definitely going to correct yes. you. <laughs> sure. Uh, this one calls two uh, blue-black, black-black-red. Like, yeah. you know, hybrid. So it's five total. All right. It's a flash two-five. Uh, whenever she or another, or whenever this or another vampire enters the battlefield under your control, exile the top card of each player's library with a collection counter on it. Once each turn, you may play a card from exile with a collection counter on it, as if it was if it was exiled with an ability. I'm sorry, let me reread this because this is super wordy. Once each turn, you may play a card from exile with a collection counter on it, if it was exiled by an ability you controlled. It, so your if your opponent has it, you can't cast. Yeah, you they, can't then, cast okay. their stuff. Uh, you may spend mana as though it were any color to cast it. So the typical like red-black thing that's been going on for the last like five years or more, where like you can steal their card, cast it. This card has to be in play uh, when it goes off, but I'll say this. If this card stays in play for more than a couple turns, you can flash it in at the end of their turn, untap, you know, cast the spell. This one could be pretty cool.
1: Yeah, so it's, it's once a turn. So the ideal here is you flash it in on their end untap, play a land with it, and then pass with some sort of instant. You know, you, so like, you hope, hopefully, your deck is chock full of instants. Maybe like you, know, you get a land off their deck, and you've gotten pretty immediate value and drawn two extra cards uh, with a fairly defensive creature. Um, so that seems pretty good to me. You know, if you can get two spells out of it and cast them over the course of two turns, gr- that's great as well. If you even if you just get one card off of it, the fact that it has flash means that you're it's just so much more flexible. It's easier to get, you know untap with it. Make sure you get your value. Um, but it also is just a reasonable defensive creature and it's generating card advantage and defense and card advantage naturally go well together. Um, at least in this sort of traditional sort of just draw cards and, but I have to cast them sort of tempo negative card advantage. Um, but this, you know, so it play, it's internally consistent of a card. Uh, I, I kind of like it.
0: Yeah. I kind of like this too, right? And a card that I mentally compare this to is gaunti. And it's a it's one mana more. It doesn't have death touch, but it does have flash, like you said. So the play pattern has a much more toughness. So it's going to block yeah. still almost it's as gonna, well as Gonti. Right, and I do it's got yeah two more toughness. I do want to mention that it does say you may play the card, so you can get lands yep. off of this. Uh, it doesn't have to be spells. Kind of like uh, I think Gonti had to be spells. Remember, right? I
1: think it said. Cast. Well, you, you looked at the top four and picked one. So if yeah. there was all yeah, it had to be a spell, but you were likely to get a spell in the top yeah, four. Yeah, you were
0: likely to spell. All right.
1: This is also a rogue, so like maybe Ooh. it fits into rogues and like pioneer. Ooh.
0: I didn't you think know about that. I've seen
1: I've seen people play rogues and pioneer and, and do okay with to. it, but like this could be a good card in that deck.
0: All right, the next one is Agnes the Dragon's Lash. Uh, this is this is the jund one, so it's triple red or black green, and it costs one colorless, so it's four. So it's one black, red, 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 green. Uh, it's a legendary creature. It's a Vishino Warrior. Those are kind of coming back a little bit. It's a three three with haste, and whenever a creature you control with haste attacks, create a tapped treasure token. So. Uh, three three for 4, not the best, though you will get a treasure off of it, so you'll go from 4 to 6, hopefully, the next turn. Um, I, I think this one's costed a little bit too much. I think at 3 mana it might have been a little bit too little. So this is one of the cards It's like, can we get a half? Can we get like, can it, can it be like 3 and, a half? and It might be right. It's also a 3-3, three, three, which like you're going to see through this set, uh, it, that's like not big enough to survive a lot of the removal. And at 4 mana it's a lot. If you have a really hasting attacking deck, I, I can see this being a thing. Or if you have a, and you'll see more of this when you go through the spoiler, there is a lot of treasure sub-theme in this set. So, like, maybe that makes it more relevant.
1: Yeah, I actually kind of like this card. I'm higher on it than you are. I I think, to me, it reads more of a mono-red card than a junk card. And just one triple red do this. And there's a plenty of red creatures with haste. And the important part is that it says whenever a creature you control with haste attacks, not when one or more.
0: Right, so So, you can get more than one.
1: Yeah, so if you attack with two or three haste creatures at at a time, you're getting two or three treasures. That's probably why they had to include the tapped clause, because if you were able to just do that and get three treasures, you know, you would just set up these really busted turns. But... Once you untap, I'm sure there's plenty of ways to use the extra mana, whether you're activating Den of the Bugbear or casting a big Shatter Skull, Smashing and obliterating your opponent's battlefield or activating other abilities of your cards. You you can put plenty of mana sinks in your deck or treasure synergies to utilize the extra material. And I like having those kinds of synergies in an aggressive shell, Because when you're able to play the aggro game plan and then use your synergies to have a stronger late game, or at least, you know, be more resilient, you know your opponent is incentivized to kill whatever early creatures that you cast because they want to protect their life total and that gives you a lot of control over the game you know you're able to uh, expose the creatures that you want to expose force your opponent's hand in using their removal the way you want them to and that leaves you with enough to get your engine online hopefully uh, and you're able to take over with that or if they don't kill your things you're able to just run them over so i to me the, this card you know it, it's a bit of a letdown because you see like almost every other card that's done things like this is just made treasures that enter untapped so that that part is a feel bad but when you realize like why it's there because this card has such a, the potential such a high potential to produce lots of treasures uh it, it doesn't take a lot to imagine doing some really powerful things with it so i, I this of i would say this is probably my favorite of the of the cycle though it's it's close i think the bant one is also really good um the, the only one I really don't particularly like is the Naya one, which I guess is we'll get to next. These all seem pretty good to me.
0: Yeah, so this is the Naya one. It's either triple green, or one of the green could be a red, or one of the green could be a white. It's a legendary creature elf druid. It's a 3-3. Three, three. It's only three mana. If you would create one or more tokens, you may instead create that many 2-2 two, two green crat, cat creature tokens. Good lord, I can't talk today. That have haste. Or that many 3-1 green dog creature tokens with uh, vigilance. Uh, why do that cats have haste and the dogs have vigilance? That's the, the weird thing for me. Generally, dogs are more zoomy than cats, but, like, whatever.
1: You yeah. Know. And, you know, cats are supposed to be, the, like, the stalking their prey, be very yeah. vigilant. Yeah. I agree. That's a bit of a flavor fail.
0: Yeah, a bit of a flavor fail. But I think it had to do with, like, the body size. And they wanted the cats to be less powerful than the, the dog. I don't know. Yeah. But this is one of the ones Um, you got to make, you got to go throw a lot of hoops to make this good. Though it is a 3-3 three, three, for 3 with, like, it, it does technically have an ability um i don't see this getting played in like any of the devotion type decks where like every time i see green i always want to look at devotion and stuff so this one seems like a pretty miss for me though i will say the flavor of it's really cool for certain decks and like commander and stuff
1: yeah definitely more of a commander card uh here where you're gonna make a huge um you know you're just gonna utilize the ability over and over again here it's a you know it's a a trained Armadon that you need to untap with to gain some like marginal value. You know, what card are you casting on turn four, like making one ones and okay, now they're just two twos of haste. Like your opponent is still going to like, if you would just untapped and, and cast a card that makes three tokens for four mana or something, or three mana, your opponent is still going to want to cast a Supreme Verdict or sweeper to, to clear up that battlefield. That hasn't changed. Yeah. Like you've gotten some extra damage in, but that doesn't really, uh, you know, woo me uh, very much. So, yeah, not a big fan. But I'm sure commander people that just want to build decks with cats and dogs are excited.
0: I can't blame you because they're all good boys. So, all right, the next one is like I think it's Riggo uh, Streetwise Mentor, and this is the triple white one where one of the white can be a green and one of the white can be a blue. It is a Legendary Creature, Cat Citizen. Uh, So maybe some synergy with the last stuff, whatever. Uh, When it enters the battlefield, it it has a shield counter on it for everybody at home. If it would be dealt damage or destroyed, remove a shield counter from it instead. So this is like the new way to protect your creatures. This is like the new, uh, what's the ability? Uh, Shroud. It's like the new shroud. It's like Uh, I was going to say,
1: like totem armor. But (laughs) yeah, or totem armor.
0: Yeah, it's like the new you can't touch me thing, but it's not like permanent right yeah. you know it's like one time and then whatever it's still gonna be very annoying to deal with it says whenever you attack a player or planeswalker with one or more creatures of power one or less draw a card so if you're like a token swarm deck with one ones this is a card that i, I could see you playing you know it's going to draw an extra card of attacking some of the one ones depending on how you build your decks this is a card that you can play it's interesting um the tokens have to have one and it does say one or more so it's only going to trigger one oh. time a turn it's not like yeah. attack you with
1: three things draw three cards Yeah, um, but the really nice thing about this is, when you're playing these kind of token decks, or even if this is just a mono white card, right? You know, you could play this in a white aggro deck, and there's plenty of one toughness creatures or one power creatures, right? When you're doing that, usually you're playing, you're going wide to make spot removal bad against you. So a card like this, where it's a relatively fragile body that you need to just stick and stick around to generate card advantage. Just turns on your opponent's spot removal, but then when you add the shield counter to it, now it's another card that is good against spot removal that plays well with the rest of your deck. So that's why I'm a pretty big fan of it. Um, I think the shield counter mechanic is incredibly powerful, and it yes. will likely warp what removal people play in standard um, and you know and um, alchemy, where you know the exile based removal or bounce spells like fading hope end up a lot you know being a lot more valuable than your typical red and black removal spell so um you know once that warbing happens and obviously the shield counters become less valuable but that that's going to then you know if, if your opponents are forced to play only removal spells like that, that gives you as the aggro player a huge advantage going into a metagame knowing these are the removal spells I have to worry about. Uh, I'll just go through and search the entire format and find the threats to match up well against those specific removal spells and, and you know get out ahead that way, uh, and, and you create that metagame churn. So I'm a pretty big fan of this card. The one thing that makes it a little awkward is that as a mono-white card, that deck is already just so full of three drops. Yeah. And this card is not going to be particularly good in mirrors, where it being a three mana, two toughness creature um, is not particularly good in combat, and your opponent has lots of exile based removal, whether it's brutal Cathar, Skyclave Apparition, uh, and the like. So um, this is a card that is good in aggro decks, but not good in aggro mirrors. So there is a bit of a, of a um, of a you know meta variance to it, uh, but definitely a card that I expect to see play.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Were there any other cycles that you kind of wanted to go over before we start just going over some of the cards that are, you know, catch your eye and stuff?
1: Well, uh, last week we already did three of the big mythics, right? right. We With had the Esper
0: one, the Grixis one, and the, I think, Bant one.
1: one. Oh, oh, and we had the Naya one. I think the only one we didn't have was Jund, and the Jund think, one is not particularly good. It's a giant dragon. I don't dragon. think
0: we talked about the Bant one.
1: We, did we not? I think the Bant one is so. also really good.
0: So I like the Bant one. Let's talk about this one for a second, because I actually think this one's really good, too. Not even just the artwork's great. The name's... It's like Falco Spara? Pact Weaver? It's a cool name. It's one Bant, so one green, white, blue, for a legendary creature, bird, demon. They're all demons, (laughs) by the way. I'm a fucking demon. Uh, It's a 3-3 flying trampler. Um, I hope somebody at home got that and they didn't think I was just being really random. Uh, It's a flying trampler. When it enters the battlefield... For what it's worth, I did not get it. It's like... I think it's Dogma. It's a... Kevin Smith movie reference if I remember it's right, talking about it flying trample when enters the battlefield it gets a shield counter on it It says you may look at the top card of your library anytime You may cast spells from the top of your library by removing a counter from a creature you control in addition to paying their other costs So it's a flying trampler for four mana It's a three three and it has one of the abilities to possibly get some card advantage, right? So I'm a fan of this one. I think it's pretty good. Four mana for 3-3 three, three that has some protection of itself. Pretty powerful. If it ever gets to cast a spell at the top of your deck, extremely powerful. And then if you take the counters off of anything else... Uh, now, it does say creature, by the way, so you can't take counters off of something else. Um, and you get some card advantage that way. I-, I can see this card being pretty powerful. The problem is, is it says that you can cast a... Um, what does it say you can cast spells okay i thought for some reason it only said instance and sorceries, but that's right no. so you know you can you can have a good mixture of anything that you want here but you're going to want creatures that have counters on them or can gain counters so yeah, you in know some way
1: well it's any type of counter you don't have to just remove you know, shield counters thing. so anything you know luminarch aspirant uh and effects like that are going to be great um and i think this just makes a great curve topper a little awkward. The, the the one awkward thing to me about this card is that it wants to be the the top of the curve. It wants you know whenever you're casting spells off the top of your library, you want a really low curve, um, so that you can do it as often as possible and just overwhelm your opponent with with card advantage. Um, and you can do that with a low curve in a sort of hardened scale Z kind of deck, right? You know, and this could be a great cyber card for those kinds of strategies if they want to splash blue. But the awkward thing is when you're playing that low that low curve. You also want to be playing lots of untapped lands which makes it harder to fix for all three colors um, you know maybe you can get away in standard and alchemy with playing uh some Triomes. maybe you can get away with it in pioneer you certainly can in modern um, but you have other options to fix in modern so that doesn't matter uh in pioneer it's probably tricky too you, you know like you don't really want you want to be playing things like Lanor elves or turn one hardened scales or uh you know you want to be starting the curve right from the get-go Um, You know, maybe you can incorporate things like Springleaf Drum or treasure tokens from uh, whatever to try to get a little bit of extra fixing alongside different dual lands. But the payoff is here. You know, this is a powerful card that is difficult for your opponent to answer. Like I've said, the shield counter mechanic is quite powerful. It, you know, by itself is is also just a good target for plus and plus one counters. Like, I wouldn't mind just loading this thing up. It's a giant flying trampler. (laughs) <laughs> like, yeah. yeah so so you know even if you're not using it as you know it might read we're using it as that, as that card advantage engine you can also use it in that other mode as just being a great recipient for pump effects so it, it kind of does everything uh but you really do pay a significant cost for that with being three colors so i'm i'm a fan of it and uh I, I'm, I'm definitely gonna look for this one you know once everybody starts getting into it and we see what everyone else comes up with, this is one that is near the top of my list of my expectations.
0: Speaking of cards, I think are going to be top of the list of your expectations for cards that you're going to like. The next one I want to talk about, I'm kind of just like rolling down the the spoiler here. It's Body Launderer, and this is one that I think you're going to like for your Black or Red Sacrifice decks, or just a card that has a lot of value for that. So it's two Black Black for a 3-3 three, three, uh, Org Rogue. Now it has Death Touch says, whenever uh, another non-token creature you control dies, this uh, connives. And then, whenever this dies, return another target non-rogue creature card with equal or lesser power from your graveyard to the battlefield. So, it's a 3-3. So, a lot of 3 you know, 2 two twos, and one ones, or things of power 3, 2, and 1, that are going to be very powerful, like going back and forth. Mayhem Devil is one that kind of... You know, it gives me a you know, pause here. And while it being four mana is going to be a little, you know, rough sometimes, you generally don't want too many cards that cost a ton in those decks because you want your mana to be free and churned through it. it. This card seems pretty powerful to me, Ross.
1: Yeah, it does a lot of good things. I'm skeptical, like you are, of it being a four drop. I think that precludes it from being particularly effective in older formats like Pioneer and Modern. But I could see this card being a key element of sacrifice decks in a standard in alchemy uh, when you know where your curves are going to naturally be a little bit higher you know the the fact that it has death touch is actually a pretty big deal oftentimes sacrifice decks can struggle with bigger creatures uh you know you do, you're not playing a ton of removal usually in those decks you're you know usually have ways to like ping off smaller creatures with mayhem devils and shambling ghasts and and things like that but the bigger creatures are usually just kind of trump you on the battlefield, so it you know it trades with those very effectively by just returning something else, um, and I'm sure you're going to have plenty of non rogues to uh, uh, to utilize or to to target with it. So uh, I could see this in standard; it needs the right home. Um, so you know this this could end up being one of those cards that just doesn't have have the right home because the supporting cast isn't there for it, but uh, it, it definitely has the potential to find a home should the supporting cast arise.
0: Mm. Uh, next card wanted to bring up this is one that uh, I kind of like quite a bit. We'll have to see how it plays out. It looks like it's to be pretty good against control decks and some other decks in general. This is Tenacious Underdog. It's one in a black for a human warrior. That's a three two. It's already you know pretty good rate for your mana, right? Three two for two um it has blitz so two black black pay two life if you cast a spell for its blitz blitz cost it gains haste and when this creature dies draw a card sacrifice it the beginning of its next end step so that means what you do for four mana you can play this instead of the two mana it's a hasting three two that's going to die in a
1: turn and draw a card so but it's here's like a dash but instead yeah, of going back of like to your dash. hand it gets replaced by a new card
0: yeah And then here's the cool part about this. You may cast Tenacious Underdog from your graveyard using its Blitz ability. So this is one of those cards that, you know, if you're one of those like kind of like aggro black red or black decks or whatever, and you're playing against a deck that goes long and kills all your creatures, you can just cast this every turn for the rest of the game at some point and be drawing extra cards at the end of the turn. Um, Now, they did tackle on that pay to life with your Blitz. In a lot of the matchups where you want to do this, it's not going to matter, but it doesn't mean you can do it infinitely. You know, you will eventually get to a point where you might die to something. So, but this is a very interesting card to me. It reads really good off the paper. All the black creatures we've gotten in the past, especially the ones that are like three twos for two that have some recurability,
1: have been pretty good. Ross, yeah. Um, you know, I think this card looks very good in in the standard formats. It plays really well with the Body Launderer, as do most Blitz cards, right? Because you can discard them to connive and start blitzing them and, you know, uh, continuously generate card advantage that way. Uh, The fact that it is, you know, just a 2-mana 3-2, which is a reasonable aggressive creature, uh, you know, means that you're not sacrificing, you know, that much power level to get this late game uh, resilience. So I do think this card's being a little bit overhyped. Like, I I just can't. When I, when I think about it compared to things like Scrap Scrounger and the cards that are seeing play in Pioneer Mono Black Aggro, I don't think this one matches up that well with them, just because it, it four mana is quite a lot for those formats. But maybe the fact that it just keeps coming back and keeps coming back uh, does sort of push it over the top. I, I could see it. It's definitely close. I could be wrong, but certainly, you know, goes a long way towards creating the supporting cast for cards like body Wanderer, If you want an aggressively slanted, you know, Racto sacrifice deck, or even just a mono black aggro deck, um, you know, this is going to be a big part of it. So yeah, definitely a card to watch um, and a card that's exactly up my alley.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm a, I'm a fan of it. And speaking of those haste creatures at Naya, we kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier. Here's an interesting one, because I like this card because it just looks like the new Lightning Angel kind of thing. This is a Fleetfoot Dancer. It's one red, green, white for an elf druid, 4-4, trample, lifelink, haste. That's
1: it. Excuse I love you. it. It only yeah. has three words on it. Yep. <laughs> I know what all the words mean. <laughs> yep.
0: It's not, it's not complicated. Here yeah. It is. And uh, I, I'm interested in this one. Trample, Lifelink, Haste, like it doesn't have flying like Lightning Angel did, but this is a really aggressive creature. It's going to be pretty good in creature matchups where we're going back and forth and racing. It's going to be pretty good at clearing planeswalkers off the top. You know, when they've like, you know, killed you if a planeswalker, or, like, or killed your creatures, tap, play this. Is, it's a pretty good uh, recovery from wrath
1: or wrath effects. Uh, I can definitely see this card seeing some play. Yeah, every other card I have to go off on these weird tangents of like what it needs to be good and all these things you got to do to maximize it and how do the abilities play with each other. This one is very simple. This is a good magic card.
0: Yeah, <laughs> like, we'll see if it shows up. It, this is one of those cards that like when you look at it, you're like, yeah, this is good. All this stuff's great. All the, all the costs are great. But is there like a home for it where it fits? Yeah. that's going to be
1: the question if this card gets played or not. It's, it's a little awkward where Naya seems to be this go wide, you know, token kind of theme. And this card Mm -hmm. is, like, the exact opposite of it. It's a self-contained good threat. Mm -hmm. And honestly, like, it's the best Nia card I've seen in the set. So it kind of makes me sad that I think I'd rather just be casting reasonable cards into this instead of trying to, you know, pass around with tokens because this is a good magic card. (laughs) Speaking of being the opposite of sad, which means being happy, this next
0: one we're going to talk about, it's probably, like, one of my favorite cards in the set, and it has some of the best flavor in the set that I like a lot, and that's Titan of Industry. And you're going to see why I say that. It's called Titan of Industry. For four green, 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 you get an elemental seven, seven. It has reach and trample. And when it enters the battlefield, you shoot two of these four abilities. Destroy target artifact or enchantment. Target player gains five life. Create a four, four green rhino warrior creature token. Or put a shield counter on a creature you control. Ross, if your deck can cast a big, dumb idiot in green, you need to at least look at this card. Like I saw the the, um, amulet titan... Cabal talking about this one on Twitter the other day about, like, you know, is this a card that you could play because it does fix certain spots that Titan itself wouldn't? Uh, let me prime evil Titan since this is also called a Titan. Uh, this is a card that screams
1: play me. I, I, wa- I wasn't going to go that deep, like, play this as a singleton and modern, but honestly, like, you might be able to. It's this is really, up. really powerful.
0: You have to choose two. You can't choose the same one twice, so you can't like naturalize yeah. twice it, or gain 10 life or whatever. It's,
1: it, it's, a, com- it's a command. Just, so, yeah. so just look at that. Look at that trigger. Look at how much would that command cast cost? How much would industry command? Well, you know, when you,
0: when you compare this to the green command that was a primal command. Yeah, like obviously it doesn't do the same stuff, but it's laughable at the at the, the price that you're paying from five to seven, and then you just get a seven-seven reach trampler attached to it. Yeah. And remember, it's in green, and it's it's mono-green, so it's four green, green, green. So, like, this might show up in Pioneer in that yeah, deck.
1: Yeah, in mono-green Devotion. It's yeah. a, They're playing, like, Storm of the Festival now, which is a little awkward with Titan of Industry, but, like, maybe you change that deck again, and you're just ramping into this. Like, can you imagine just, like, casting this card, putting a shield counter on it, making a 4-4? Four, four? Like, that's what you do against go. the control decks. You yeah, know, go. Your, your sweeper <laughs> leaves me with a 7-7, seven, seven, and, you know, your, your removal spell leaves me with one of them. I'm still looking pretty good, or I like destroy your portable hole, get something back and do something, you know, do one of the other two against aggressive decks. I gain five and make a four, four. So now I've got two more, two giant blockers and a a life buffer.
0: What's not to like about this card? I love it. I think it's, 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 it's possibly, this is one of the early leaders in the clubhouse for number one card in the set
1: for me. I don't know if I'm going to go that high. I I just think it has a very well-defined role and it's very good in that role.
0: It's making my list of, yeah. of, it's probably making my top eight. And this is one of the ones I've looked at. And I'm like, that's for sure, I think, making my list.
1: At this point, all I can say is the cards that are going to be on my initial list. You know, when I make my top eight list, I'll just go through the entire set yep. and I'll mark down any card that I think could make it. And I'll usually have about 15 or 20 and then I have to pare down from there. This card is definitely on the initial list. Yeah. You know.
0: Speaking of cards, it would be your number one if you were one Shaheen Sarani. The next card we're going to talk about <laughs> is Void Rind. Uh It's Esper colored. It's white, blue, black for an instant. This spell can't be countered. Destroy target non-land permanent. Um, I like this card. Looking at it, it reads really well off the card. Here's the thing. Is it going to fit somewhere? That's the big thing. I had some people talking to me um, in another Discord where we were talking about Pioneer, and people are like, oh, do you think you're going to play this in, like, the blue-white deck in Pioneer? And I'm like, no. A, I don't want to add a color to that deck. B, what does this fix that that deck doesn't already have, like, an out to? Yeah. It doesn't already have an answer for? I think this is going to be a card that really shines, or if it's going to be good, it's going to be good in standard. And then maybe it shows up as, like, a one-of somewhere, right? Like, you know, uh, what do you call it? The five-color deck in Pioneer. Um, Niv-Mizzet maybe plays one. Uh, some other card, you know, some other uh, set... Some other card, uh, sorry, some other deck, maybe in, like, Modern, if Esper becomes playable in Modern, it might play one, but it's three mana to remove something. It's generally been hitting a one or two drop, and that's a lot to ask, but this card is powerful and probably will be, like, removal format defining for Standard.
1: This card is as good as Esper decks are. Yes. You're not going to play Esper just to play Voidrend in your deck. That's Unless that, you're Shaheen. But... That, yeah, well, he's just going to play Esper anyway, so... yeah. Um. But if you're playing Esper, you're going to have Voidrend in your deck. So there's got to be some other reason to play Esper. Um, but if there is, you know, Voidrend will bolster that card and, and you know, we'll see play. But after, you know, well, like we saw Mythos of Nethroi, right? Which is sort of an ab- a better version of this card, but in Abzan. But there just weren't Abzan decks for it. Um, and, uh, the, you know, it, that, that fate could befall Voidrend as well. So it's just going to depend on what the Esper decks look like. The awkward thing for standard is, as I've mentioned multiple times, the other Esper cards are this sort of like mid range aggro strategy. Like, do you want this kind of spell in that deck? It's not as good as it would be in just a hardline control deck. So um, that's a bit of a of a nombo there. But it, at a standard power, uh, a standard rate, you know, three mana for this effect is low enough that you're going to play it at least in some numbers in in most Esper color decks, if not all of them. So. It'll just depend on how good the Esper cards are.
0: Yeah, there's a few more Esper cards we haven't gone through yet that I think are going to pair pretty well with this one. We'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, there's a card in here called Incandescent Aria that I think fits well with... it's. You know, we've talked about this. We've, had, we've seen themes for, for the, the three-color things, and this one fits well in its theme. So this one is red, green, white, and it says this deals three damage to each non-token creature. And so far, we've seen Naya make quite a bit of tokens. Right, and so this is a card that's going to be pretty good in as like a cyborg card, in your creature matchups. Right, you know where you're like you know make a token, make a token, make a token. They're like play some creatures. You're like all right, well they'll throw all three damage to all of your creatures, not mine. You know maybe maybe attack. It's a little um what's the word I'm looking for here? It's a little narrow. But if if the situations come up or matchups come up where this card is good, it's going to be game winning every time you cast it.
1: Um, Yeah, and uh, you know it's not going to see significant play in. Uh, you know, four and five color decks, even if they can cast it, um, especially in formats where Definite Clarion is already legal. But this is the kind of effect that aggro decks usually don't have in their sideboard, right? You know, because you're playing creatures too, you can't really play sweeper. So it's going to be, this is a very narrowly powerful card. If if the Naya token decks are good, they're going to end up being really good against aggro decks because they have, you know, if they want to be, because they have this bomb of a card in their sideboard that, is really difficult for a typical aggro deck to prepare for when they're trying to beat another aggro deck, you know. Do you do you, I now have to bring in, you know, my anti-control cards so I can fight through your sweeper and now you're usually then playing the game that the token deck wants to play. You know, token decks tend to be pretty good at grinding anyway, because you can find ways in combat to trade tokens for a full card worth or two tokens out of three for a full card and just generate it, bits of card advantage here and there. So, um, you, you know, you don't really want to be playing that game as a normalized aggro deck against a token aggro deck, but Incandescent Aria might force you to do so, which uh, could really upset the typical balance of power in a standard metagame. mm
0: mm-hmm. Uh Next one to talk about, you know, we talked about Voran and this is a card that I think might play pretty well next to it if Esper is a play card. And this is Obscura Interceptor, and this is a card that I'm pretty interested in. It plays a lot like cards that I like. So it's one white, blue, black. Uh, it's a cephalid wizard. It's a three one and it has flash and life link. But when it enters the battlefield, it connives. when it connives this way, return up to one target spell to its owner's hand. So this has a remand, or uh, what's what's the blue one that's in standard right now that returns something to their hand? Uh,
1: unsubstantiate. Is that in standard? Yeah,
0: there's unsubstantiate, but there's like the, the one that learns. Oh, that had, uh,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that they, that they divide by change.
0: zero. Yeah, divide by zero. So this is it. Just has a three-one life linking body attached to it. So if there's an Esper deck that has like some creatures to it and some pretty you know some spells, like you said, that they're a little creature centric and trying to beat you down, this is a card that fits okay into that into that uh, that shell because. You know, it's a four mana card that is aggressive, but also buys you time. If like you ever get to like blink their entire turn and then like do some attacking, that's pretty good.
1: Yeah, I do think this card is solid. the The body is awkward. You know, one toughness without any sort of evasion, so that that worries me a little bit. Um, but the you know, obviously like lifelink is quite valuable because these cards tend to be a little bit weaker against aggressive decks because you, you usually don't have time to just hold up the four mana for it. You're, you're falling behind on the battlefield. So when you're in the games against aggressive decks where you're just forced to cast this and trade off, you're getting some value in that trade in the form of a little bit of extra life. So um, that helps raise the cards floor a little bit uh, in a situation where it would normally be quite weak. Makes it a lot more main deckable in that case. So yeah, I, I do think this is one of the better Esper cards in the set. Uh, and will be a, a big part of any Esper deck in Standard or Alchemy that, that sees play. You, you did skip a card I want to talk about. Sure, go ahead, no, go ahead. And that is Sanctuary Warden.
0: Okay, I didn't know if you'd be super interested in this one or not.
1: I, okay. I am. I, I'm into basically any any creature with shield counters on it, Tanner. Okay, because <laughs> this one seems very generic to me, so go ahead. But it's just generically powerful. It's four white, white, four, sure. five, five, angel, Sorry. soldier with flying. It enters the battlefield with two shield counters on it. Which is and, really cool, right? There's yeah. two of them. Yeah. And it, you know the reminder text says you only remove one if it would be, you know, uh, if it would die or, or uh, be dealt. Is it dealt any damage? What exactly is the... I uh, think it's when it's, if it would be dealt damage it, or destroyed. dies, yeah. Um, so, you know, if they, like, chump lock with it, they'll get a shield counter for their troubles, right? If they chump lock with a creature. Uh, but it says, whenever Sanctuary Warden enters the battlefield or attacks, you may remove a counter from a creature or Planeswalker you control. Now, notably, it does say Planeswalker, and oftentimes you do have, you know, spare loyalty counter on one. If you do, draw a card and create a 1-1 green and white citizen creature token. So... First thing I always do is just look at the card by itself. This can be... You have a lot of flexibility. It can be a 5-5 flyer that's really hard to deal with if you are if you know your opponent doesn't have a lot of bounce or exile-based removal. You know, now you've got this... You're basically impossible to deal with giant flyer. If your opponent does have ways to deal with it, you know enter the battlefield, remove one of those, get your, get your value immediately, draw a card and make a one, one. Now, you know, yeah, if your opponent uses their three mana spell to deal with your six drop, you're probably not that happy because they're ahead on tempo. Um, but you, if they're not taking advantage of that tempo, then, you know, you've, you're up a card and whatever the one, one is worth. Um, and then, you know, if your opponent, if, if you want to, the next turn when you attack, you can just do it again. Draw an extra card. Now you've generated two cards of value. You still have the 5-5 five five that they have to answer. Sure, it's easy to answer at this point, but now you've untapped and drawn two extra cards. So you don't really give a shit what removal spell they use to kill, kill an angel. You're coming out ahead. Uh, and 2-1-1s. One so 2-1-1s you know, one is generally, like that's probably close to a card worth of value, if not worth a full card. Um, to be
0: fair, when I read this card the first time, I completely missed the if you do draw a card.
1: Yeah. And this is a lot less basic than I thought it was. Okay. And, if you want the warden to stick stick around, like that, that's what it does by itself. That's just like as like a top end finisher in a control deck, right? You know, you could play that, draw a card, have an extra one one, and now against the aggro deck, you have two blockers, one of which is gigantic and flies, and they they're gonna have a hard time, you know, clearing that blocker away. And you have you know a chump blocker or maybe something to to trade with a two one that they have, anything like that. Um. So matching up well against the most aggressive decks, Brutal Cathar is a bit brutal against it, but, you know, then you get to kill their Brutal Cathar and get your Warden back and, you know, have two more counters to do, to do things with. Now look at it in, like, the top end of a mid-range deck with other creatures or Planeswalkers in it. Suddenly you've got this 5-5 with two shield counters on it that is removing less relevant counters, whether it's loyalty from Planeswalkers or counters from other creatures and you're drawing extra cards every single turn and creating a bunch of one ones. Now it looks more like a titan, right? You know, when it enters the battlefield or attacks, uh, you know, you're generating a, a reasonable amount of additional value and pretty quickly running away with the game. I think this card is really good.
0: Yeah, uh, the more and more I hear you talk about it, yeah, I'm like, yeah, this card might actually be really, really sweet. I was like wondering why it's a mythic because it just like it's a five <laughs> yeah. five that like can't die that makes a one one. No. But like I was like, oh, this does so much more. I missed the yeah, the drawing the card card. cards part of it is pre- sure is read... pretty important. Uh, with magic cards nowadays, you should probably read them twice with how much word with how <laughs> oh, many yeah. words are on them. Uh, speaking of creatures that leave uh, tokens along with them, we have a. Uh, s- people have been talking this like the new Thragtusk because, and you'll see why. This is a Workshop War Chief. It's three green green for a Rhino Warrior five three with Trample. Uh, when it enters the battlefield, you gain three life. When it dies, you create a four four green Rhino Warrior creature token, and it does have Blitz as well for four green green. So this is pretty cool. When you cast it for Blitz, it's a Hasting five three that's going to draw you card and leave a four four and gain three life. That's like a lot, actually. And if this is like killing a Planeswalker, you know, if like they're like, hey, like, do some stuff. And you're like, all right, you know, haste this thing in, kill your Planeswalker, leave behind a 4-4, gain three life, draw a card. Like, I'm in for, like, all
1: this. And, it, and, you know, it has trample, so dealing with a Planeswalker as a five-power haste trampler, that, that's pretty easy to do. The the one thing this doesn't have is that it's a dice trigger to make the token as opposed to a leaves the battlefield trigger. So uh, you don't get to do the weird tricks with Restoration Angel if your opponent bounces it or exiles it. Uh, you know, you're not going to get it, but I think that's where the blitz part of the, uh, you know, card come really comes in. In If your opponent has a lot of exile-based removal, like, just blitz this card and, sure, and, like, get get your immediate value, get some damage in, at least, and, and have them use their removal spell on your 4-4. Um, now you've, you know, effectively made the same trade, but you're getting in significant amounts of damage and putting them under a lot more pressure. Um, And if they don't have the exile based removal spell, you know, it is essentially Thragtusk, you know, pretty comparable, right? Same initial body, two less life, but the token it leaves behind is is a little bit better and it is tramples. So, you know, those are all small changes around the margins. You know, the card compares pretty favorably to a card that was among the best in standard for, you know, two straight years. Mm -hmm. And this this one's very, very comparable, like you said. So uh, I'm very interested in that one. It is 3 GG. There were a lot of decks that were like blue white control with Farseek and Thrag Tusk. Thrag Tusk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly. And that, like that's not, not going to happen with this one or something. Something. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I do like that this is 3GG, but yeah, this is just another good value card. I do think the, the blitz mechanic is pretty powerful. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I do just just giving you a lot of options, especially with attacking planeswalkers, going to make it more difficult to, you know, stick a planeswalker. Sometimes your opponent's just not going to cast it because they're afraid of your haste threat. So uh, you might get, you know, some of that implied value when you don't even draw the card uh, because of the threat of it. So, yeah, Workshop Warchief is another one that's pretty high on my list. Yeah, I'm going to skip
0: down a little bit, you know, maybe skip some other cards because of time stuff. And I want to make sure that we get a lot of these mythics talking in. And let's talk about the two Planeswalkers or let's talk about the Planeswalkers in the set. Let's talk about Elspeth Resplendent first. Three white white for a legendary Planeswalker Elspeth. Let me pull this up because it's very small on my screen. Um, three white white for five loyalty. Plus one. Choose up to one target creature. Put a plus one, plus one counter and a counter from among flying, first strike, lifelink, and vigilance on it. Minus three. Look at the top seven cards of your library. You may put a permanent card of mana value three or less or among them on the battlefield with a shield counter on it. Put the rest on the bottom of your library in any order. Minus seven. Create five, three, three white uh, creature tokens with flying. Uh, this seems pretty decent to me, Ross. Now, it's one of the ones where like you need a board presence for it to really... You know be very good you know the plus is great you know but if you play this minus three it and god forbid you whiff or you get something that's not very good you're probably going to lose that and your planeswalker over the next turn but it does come with a shield counter on the creature it's five mana for five loyalty which is pretty decent as well um i can see this one showing up in some of these like naya decks or like just some of the white decks that can cast it
1: um not yeah super potentially high it, five just five mana is a lot for a planeswalker that isn't much of a standalone threat You know, if you need this to be a standalone threat, you got to minus it immediately. It's on two loyalty at that point. You've gotten, like, yeah, I said I I like shield counters, but a three drop of the shield counter on it on turn five is often going to be ignorable. So I actually think one of the keys to this card is having threats that you hit off of it that your opponent can't ignore. I I don't know what those might be. You know, maybe you're minusing into things like Brutal Cathar and Skyclive Apparition. So you're dealing with something on your opponent's battlefield and not making it easy for them to get it back. Like that that's probably the best case scenario, because then it also helps you protect the Elspeth itself. Um so maybe that's where, where it goes in. And now you've got this sort of like mid-rangey white deck. I'm not really sure what where that goes. Um, but like that that seems like pretty good hits, but f- five is a lot. I'm not I'm not sold yeah, on it. I'm right there with you.
0: Speaking of five being a lot, how about six? Then that's the Vivian. Uh it's Vivian on the hunt, four green green for four loyalty. Plus two. You may sacrifice a creature. If you do, search your library for a creature card of mana value equal to one plus the sacrifice creature's mana value. Put it on the battlefield and shuffle. Plus one. Mill five ca- mill five cards. <coughs> Excuse me. Then put any number of creature cards milled this way into your hand. Minus one. Create a four four green rhino
1: creature token. This one I'm a little higher on. I think you it has a lot of options. There's not a huge immediate impact, but the fact that it has three good abilities uh and can, you know, advance a battlefield, can create a battlefield and can generate card advantage, like significant card advantage um with, with the, the first plus one, I guess the only plus one. Um makes me like this one. Do, do you know about the combo with this card? i've heard some people talking about it. what is it so uh you, there's the tuna red creature that you can pay red to like sneak attack planeswalkers onto the battlefield right right yeah, yeah, yeah. so you sneak up this onto the battlefield so four mana and these two cards right you cast the the, the first three drop i can't remember the name of it um and you a uh, sneak attack vivian onto the battlefield you plus two vivian you sack the three drop okay you find felidar guardian you blink vivian now you plus a Viv- plus two Vivian again. Sack Felidar Guardian. Get Karmic Guide, which was in the latest Modern Horizon set. You return the Felidar Guardian. You blink Vivian, and then you sack the uh, Felidar Guardian. Get Kiki Jiki. Copy Karmic Guide. Return Felidar Guardian, and now you have the the combo full in line. Kiki it and and Guardian.
0: Huh. <coughs> that's a that's a lot, but
1: it is it is, it is a spl- it is a Splinter Twin that doesn't require you to untap. It's all manageable on one turn. Um, you know, is in all the sort of Naya colors, which isn't great, but uh, and is you know a lightning bolt breaks it up because the creature is a two three. But I don't know, you know, and Modern you can do it on turn two with Arbor Elf and and sure. Utopia Sprawl. Sure. And uh, and I don't know what uh, I guess Karmic Guide isn't in Pioneer, so this is a Modern combo. And, you know, there's plenty of two card things in Modern, but maybe that one ends up being good if you can build it with enough resilience and and. Uh, yeah. You know, you can play cards like Oath of Nissa that dig for both sides of the combo and, uh, and things like that. Maybe you incorporate some sort of aggro plan in it. You got this mid-range, like Vivian's is a pretty powerful mid-range card, though six mana is a lot for modern. But um, I, I'd be a little skeptical there, but it's cool. Uh, this card, I'm, I'm higher on Vivian than I am on Elspeth um, just because it, it does so many different things. So, And I think it's going to run away with the game pretty quickly. As the top end of you know, a lot of mid-range decks, uh, you just generate so much value. Oddly enough, I think the plus two, while like cool and combos like that, is the least relevant ability when you're playing this card fair. You're mostly just going to be drawing, like, you're going to try to cast it, make a 4-4, four, four, protect it for a turn, untap, plus one, generate a bunch of value, and take over the game, right? Mm. Uh, but that seems like a pretty reasonable you know sequence of, of plays to me, as long as you have some battlefield to protect it
0: absolutely and let's talk about the last planeswalker in the set and this is this one might actually be my favorite for number one card in the set for many reasons besides the fact that it's powerful but it looks like it already has a deck that it just goes in and this is obnixless the adversary a card that i think ross is going to get very excited about one red black for legendary planeswalker nixless it's got three loyalty it has a static it has a let me pull this up casualty x uh so as you cast this spell, you may sacrifice a creature of power X. When you do, copy the spell. The copy becomes a token. Uh, the copy isn't legendary and has starting loyalty of X. So you can't just do zero. You need to at least do one, right? Uh, it's plus one. Each opponent loses two life unless they discard a card. If you control a demon or a devil, you gain two life. Minus two. Create a one-one red devil creature token with when this creature dies, it deals one damage to any target. Minus seven. Target player draws seven cards and loses seven life. Ross, I'm just going to let you go off.
1: Well, there's the obvious: if you like manage to cast this and sack a seven power creature, you can immediately draw seven and lose seven, which is kind of cool. Though, if you have a seven power creature, I don't know why you're sacrificing it. Um, you know, I think most of the time you're going to be trying to cast this and sacrifice, you know, some crappy creature and start plussing. The uh, token copy, like I can imagine having like Shambling Ghast right on turn one and then something on turn two and then turn three, you cast this, you sack the Shambling Ghast, you either kill a small creature on their side or make a treasure token. And now you've got an Obnix on three and an Obnixxless on one. You minus two the one on three, make your devil. Then you plus the other one, and you start, yeah. you know, draining, draining them or yeah. uh, having them discard cards. And you've got a Planeswalker on two and a Planeswalker on one, and you know poten- potentially multiple blockers already in place to uh, to protect them. And it's not even though these abilities, you know, the the plus one and minus two specifically aren't the highest impact abilities when you're getting two of them every turn, you know, it's going to add up (laughs) like you kind of have to look at Omnixilus because of the casualty X as a sort of, you know, plus one, do that twice or minus two, do that twice. You know, uh, oftentimes you're going to do one of each. Right. Um, And that's that's pretty cool. I do think this card is quite good. Uh, obviously in a narrow range of decks it's going to be the, you know the Raptor Sacrifice Planeswalker, but um I'm I'm pretty high on it and I will definitely be uh, brewing with it, you know. If, if I was still writing, this is this would have been a card I would have been jumped on immediately for an article. I call dibs.
0: I call yeah. dibs. Yeah.
1: Which is basically how our system worked. It was literally yeah. just, you know, message Cedric, and he tells you, and it's first come, first serve. And there were times when I would see a card and be like, ooh, I want that one. And then I'd go into our Slack, and somebody would have dibsed it, you know, half an hour ago, and I got really mad. Um, but Omnixalus is definitely a card that I would have jumped on very quickly. So,
0: all right, Let's try to get through a couple of these uh, quick. I've got a couple other things to take care of today. Uh, I'm going to go through a few more of the mythics. we got All-Sing, Arbiter, for Blue, Blue. For Creature, Avatar, it's a 5-4, Flying. When it enters the battlefield or attacks, draw two cards and then discard a card. Whenever you discard a card, target creature and opponent control gets minus X, minus 0 until, in a turn, until in your next turn, sorry, or X is the number of different mana values among cards in your graveyard. I'm not so sure about this one for Constructed, this is a limited powerhouse, uh, six mana for a five four flyer that doesn't like uh, protect itself anyway. It's hard to do, but it does get you at least a little bit of card selection when it comes into play.
1: And, and it's it's a trigger to build the second trigger that is really interesting. Like you're 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 generating card advantage, but you're also hopefully negating one of their attackers. Um, and you know by the time you're casting a six drop, you should have two, three, four different mana values among cards in your graveyard. Uh, most likely, and so you're going to be able to shrink a pretty reasonably sized attacker. The five-four flyer presumably can block something. Um, no way to protect it is a little awkward, but if you're if the sh- you know shrinking one attacker and forcing them to have a removal spell immediately is enough to keep you alive, you know you've generated some some card advantage. You should be able to untap and do something good. I like this card. I just don't like it as much as the White Mythic, and I think they're often going to be vying for spots in the same deck, you know, these just yeah. Azorius-based control decks that pop up all the time. Um, what was the name of the, the white card again? The Angel? Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah, I don't remember. So,
1: um, But that, that's that's my problem with this card, is I just think it's worse than Sanctuary yeah. Warden, sure. and it's, you know, maybe there's like a Demure control deck, but... Those Namir control decks in this format are just going to end up being Esper control decks, right? Yeah. And suddenly you've got White in your deck, and I'd rather play the Warden. Maybe I end up being wrong. Like, if there's enough Exile-based removal, right, because of all the uh, counters and the new Thrag tusk and things like that, maybe All-Seeing Arbiter and the extra card advantage from it is, is worthwhile. Um, but the card advantage, you know, you net card advantage from the Warden, too. so. Uh, yeah, I I do think the card in a vacuum is pretty good. It's just fighting with a more powerful card, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, one of the next ones, I mean, there's a ton of other cards in here that are cool and stuff, but like one of the ones I've seen some people talk about this is a blue mythic. It's called Even the Score. It's X, blue, 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 instant, draw X cards. This spell costs three blue less to cast if your opponent has drawn four or more cards this turn. So the big one I've heard a lot of people say is like, oh, Brainstorm has like, uh, you know, you gotta be kind of worried now. If your opponent brainstorms, then like they, your opponent can play this, and like I'm just like that doesn't even like that. What? Like what? what? <laughs> like like why? Why would I care? So I, this I'd is rather gonna... I'd
1: rather cast Seed Time if my opponent casts a brainstorm.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. So th- this is a spell I can see it showing up in some format somewhere. Like maybe if like a control deck is good in this format, you may play like one. In your deck, it's like, you know, that card that late in the game, you know, they don't do anything. You're like, all right, well, draw five at the end of your turn whatever, and I probably win the game from here. It's like almost never going to happen with the other stuff, the other abilities. So Maybe it's
1: good against like Jace the Mind Sculptor. Like they brainstorm with Jace and then you like in modern or something and you now you're like, okay, draw four cards, five cards, untap, kill your Jace, and I think sure. I'm ahead. But sure. like, so much needs to line up for that to happen. Like to me, this is an X blue, 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 draw X cards and every, you know, 20 games you're going to get the bonus and, the, and it's going to feel really cool. But 95% of my evaluation of the card comes just from that first mode. Uh, and, you know, Sphinx's Revelation was a, a pretty good magic card. Granted, the life was a big part of it against decks. but you're telling me, like, you can't play one or two in a control deck of, of you know, this this spell, especially if you don't need to be white, if you're just, maybe you're a mono-blue deck. Um, but, you know, the fact that it's an instant and you're, you're able to, you know, I, like, part of it with Revelation 2 is that, like, you chained them into each other, um, and the life was, was a big part of that. So um, I, I still think the card has potential just on, on that rate, but I'm not really worrying about the, the cost reduction.
0: Yeah, and <clears throat> before we get, like, you know, too far into this, were there any of the cards that really jumped out at you? Because, like, there's, I mean, we could just talk about this entire set. This set has so much going on. There's so many cool things. Obviously, the Triomes are very, very good, which they're not called Triomes, but that's what we're going to call them from yeah. now on. Um, you know, there's some really cool mythics that we kind of skirted over, some cool Uncommon, some cool rares. There's a set of um, color hosers in this set as like good sideboard cards that are going to be sweet and played and standard and stuff like that. So There's definitely some like cool cards that we're going to kind of skip over just a little bit, but we're going to possibly be talking about next week. Anything else really stand out to you that you wanted to talk about?
1: Yeah, there's three. There's- Three cards, and I'll try to sure. keep it brief on them. The first one, uh, the, the last two kind of go together, so we'll do the fr- the other one first, and that's Reservoir Kraken. Two blue-blue for a 6-6 six, six, uh, Kraken, has Trample mm-hmm. and Ward 2, yeah, and then cool. at the beginning of each combat, if Reservoir Kraken is untapped, any opponent may tap an untapped creature they control. If they do, tap Reservoir Kraken and create a 1-1 one, one blue fish creature token with This Creature Can't Be Blocked. So, so this is
0: what, the blue Desecrator Demon? Yeah, is Desecration that that Demon. Desecration but, Demon, but yeah. Very
1: reminiscent of that card, but the Ward 2, pretty important. They can't just, oh, you yeah. know, kill your 4-drop four, your four with a 2-mana removal spell and come out ahead. So I like that aspect of it. Um, obviously, like, they get to just tap their creature instead of sacrificing it to tap down the, the, the Kraken. But you also get a 1-1 out of it as opposed to a counter on the Kraken, which is way better. So there's some give and take there. Now, desecration demon was obviously very good in mono black devotion back in the day. I don't think you can assume that this card is going to be as good there. You know, part of it is just the context in which the cards exist. In this case, like the just didn't have great removal in that format. Um, you know, especially if they weren't mono black mirrors where they were playing Heroes Downfall and and the Edict and things like that. Um, so, but the fact that this card is better against removal, which is more likely to encounter. Uh, it goes a long way towards making you think like this card seems pretty good, um, and it does seem like they're trying to get blue more creatures like the Esper, you know, colors doing stuff. Uh, so maybe there's more like mid range blue decks that aren't just relying on counter spells and removal, but are actually playing that typical sort of Jundy style game. And this is just a card that's a really good rate, um, especially because it, you know, you know, Trample is, is similar to flying, so it has a bit of evasion too. Uh, so I like that card. Definitely didn't want to skip over that. And then the other two I wanted to talk about, um, one of them is the mythic equipment that everyone's talking about because of Devoted Druid. Um, so this is, uh, Luxior, Jada's Gift, uh, one mana, legendary artifact equipment. Equipped creature gets plus one, plus one for each counter on it. So that means what, you know, once you equip a Devoted Druid, you tap it for mana, put a counter, put a minus minus one counter on it, untap it. And then uh, now you you know you haven't changed its uh, toughness at all because it keeps getting plus an extra plus one plus one each time you do it. Uh, Equipped creature isn't a planeswalker and is a creature in addition to its other types. Loyalty abilities can still be activated. I'm not really sure how that works at all, uh, but it equips to planeswalkers for one. Um, and, you know, so like presumably Planeswalkers, because they don't have any uh, a power toughness box, will be default to zero zero, but they'll effectively have power toughness equal to the number of loyalty counters on them because of the other ability. So you can start like attacking with your Planeswalkers, which is kind of cool, uh, but the, you also just equip creatures for three. So for four mana, which conveniently curves well with Devoted Druid, you know, you uh, just play a third land, play this, equip it, and uh, and you're good to go. You can also um, play turn one Urza Saga, turn two Devoted Druid, turn three, uh, if your Devoted Druid lived, float a mana with the uh, Urza Saga, find Luxior. Now you don't even need another land drop. You just equip to the Devoted Druid and go off. So, um, you know, uh, there's obvious combos there. The fact that you can find Luxior with Stoneforge Mystic and Urza Saga means that you probably only have to play one, maybe two copies of it in your deck. You Maybe you still play one zero of Remedies because you can find it with things like Chord or whatever, but it makes it a lot easier to fill out the rest of a Devoted Dura deck with actual cards instead of combo pieces, you know, and, and Urza's Saga, we know, gives you a reasonable backup plan, just making constructs and finding some value artifacts can do it then Stoneforge Mystic can also find Calder Complete or Skull and give you, you know, more of that you know, backup plan. And that's what Devoted Druid decks have been missing. Um, so that one looks really cool to me for that, if it enables those decks to return to modern. But I also think that those decks got something else um, that's being a little overlooked. Let me see if I can find it. I've, I, I had it before. Here it is. Extraction Specialist. This is a two and a white for a 3-2 human rogue with lifelink. When it enters the battlefield, return target creature card with mana value 2 or less from your graveyard to the battlefield. That creature can't attack or block for as long as you control Extraction Specialist. Well, Devoted Druid doesn't do a whole lot of attacking or blocking. Yeah, they don't give a shit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, when you play your Devoted Druid on turn 2, now you just play Extraction Specialist on turn 3 when they kill it. And, it, you know, you force them to, to kill it again. But it adds this 3-2 them, yeah. body to your, to your battlefield that... You're able to you know start applying pressure with and really uh you know um really ensure that uh you have that good aggro backup plan this also enables you to only play like one copy of vizier of remedies because then if they kill it and you need to get it back you can get it back with an extraction specialist um and uh, you know go from there so uh, there's a lot more options for the Devoted Druid decks than there has been in uh, recent years. And I, I used to advocate being, you know, because the the not all-in versions were actually, like, secretly all-in because they could never win a normal game. I actually advocated playing with like, the really weird versions that had, like, Hall of the Bandit Lord and were just super all-in with, like, Summoner's packs and stuff and very Glass cannony because I thought it was just the best way um, to go about building it. Now it seems like you can really build a true, you know, aggro combo deck that has the ability to beat you in a ton of different ways. The, similar to like how Hammer works, right? You know, Hammer's power doesn't come from just always killing you on turn three. You know, it's not infect in that way, even though it kind of grew out of infect style decks. It really is a very grindy deck that forces you to always respect the threat of the combo. Uh, that is the the big you know question for devoted Druid decks. Like, are you better than Hammer? Um, and certainly, you know, in linear matchups, devoted Druid is faster. Devoted Druid X kill on turn three a huge portion of the time when uh, unmolested. So, uh, I think both of those cards. And while the equipment is getting a lot more uh, press, Extraction Specialist also quite good um, in the, the you know those kinds of decks uh, could really revitalize that archetype in Modern. So I wanted to. Make sure we uh, noted that.
0: Yeah, one of the other cards that I, I did want to make sure I mentioned real quick, because I kind of forgot about this one for a second, though. I, I do think this one's going to be impactful and standard, is Depopulate. And this is the new Wrath variant. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's two white, white. Each player who controls a multicolored creature draws a card, then destroy all creatures.
1: So, what was the last one? Shatter the Sky, I think is what it was called. And Yeah, and that one was pretty good. Like, that's awesome play. This card is significantly better than Shatter the Sky. Now, Supreme Verdict exists in uh, you know, um, in uh, watch them in Pioneer, so probably not going to break into that format. Though it could potentially be a, a tutor target for Niv Mizzet decks, right? Because like you often have a multicolored creature, and you know, so sometimes you're going to draw the extra card. Probably not worth the times when your opponent has the multicolored creature, you know, especially with like Naya Wynoda around. But something to think about at least. Um, but f- for Standard and Alchemy. That card is is going to be Wrath of God a huge portion of the time.
0: Absolutely. And uh, was there any other ones that you wanted to get over before?
1: Can we quickly uh, uh, note the uh, the charms? Because we saw we saw the Jund. We saw Esper. We saw... I, I guess mean, the only one we... We, did we I think we had all these last week, I guess. I think we
0: might have had them all. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, we don't need to do that then. Sure. And I mean, we're going to talk about some more. of this. I mean, we can go over some of these cards next week when we do our top eight if we didn't get to some of them. Because, I mean, one show is not enough to cover this entire set, because this entire set is really, really sweet. Now, we do have some mailbag questions, but before we get to that, I want to make sure that we mention our sponsors here today. Uh, Make sure you check out Mox Roasters. That's one of our new sponsors here that do um, a lot of coffee and coffee-related products. Make sure you check them out. And I did kind of want to shout them out because they, they, uh, they sent me something that they've got going on. So if you're in the Houston, Texas area or anywhere around that, they're actually hosting a tournament at Mox Roasters uh, soon. It's a team trios 1K Pioneer Modern and Legacy. Uh, that's going to be going on May 1st. Uh, it's $75 a team, 16 team 16 team cap. The new set will be legal. Uh, it's it's a, you know it's a 1K, and then prizes will scale based on attendance. And uh, there's going to be food uh, catered there as well, plus you know obviously some drinks of coffee and stuff. And this is going to be leading uh, most likely into a tournament series where, you know, if this does really well, they'll lead into a tournament series where you can accumulate points and you can win a mox at the end of the year, which is kind of cool, right? You know, the mox are giving away a mox. Uh, I've been drinking the Ugandan quite a bit, and I've actually let one of my friends try it out. Uh, I'm a big fan of it. It tastes a lot like um, hot chocolate, I think is what we've been talking about. Uh, so make sure you check out their stuff. Ross, do you remember what their, uh, what their what the code was for this one, or do you need me to do that one? I do not remember the code for this, this one. This one is just MTG Rants in all caps. I'm doing this because I sounded bad because I forgot the other one once, so I'm just been trying to make myself seem smarter. So I apologize. MTG Rants, uh, MTG R A N T S, all caps. Ten percent discount code at checkout. Uh, that's for the entire site. Lots of cool stuff. Uh, lots of coffee. And if you need, you know, something to go along with like the the stuff that helps make the coffee, they got that stuff as well. So make sure you check them out. Uh, helps us out, helps you out. And in the long run, it's cheaper than going to Starbucks every day. And then don't forget about the OG, the original uh, sponsor of this site. That's Barrister and Man. com for all of your needs. For and then it comes to soap, shaving, you want to smell better, any of that stuff. Make sure you check them out. That's man, that's man2ends.com. And what's the code for that one, Ross?
1: That is MTGRants2022. And that's for 15% off
0: check out I've got a uh, I've got a new box here that I've been opening that I'm going to wait to open uh, I'm going to be opening sometime soon and I actually got a message from them a couple days ago what was the new scent they wanted to ask me about I think it was okay this is one I was super excited I'm going to get something in it it is if I remember right let me make sure uh I think it was sandalwood if I remember right let me uh yeah they just they I love the way they does it he goes uh, he just messaged me he goes Tannon do you like sandalwood and I'm like Yes, I do. That actually sounds great. Like, you know, I was like, look, let me figure out what I need. I was like, let me go through all my supplies, see what I'm missing, and then I'll let you know what I'm low on. It. And then I'll, I'll get some sandalwood of that. So make sure you check them out. Go for the sandalwood. Try it out. That sounds really good. Uh, we did have a couple questions in our mailbag. Just for everybody, we do have a mailbag submission. We've been, I, I'm going to say, I've been bad about making sure we get these taken care of in the last few weeks. So I'm going to go ahead and get some of these taken care of, but this is something that we do in our Patreon. It's a it's a thing. It's kind of helps out our Patreons at home. They get to ask us a question directly. We talk about this on air. This one's from Craig. He says, Thoughts on Modern Storm at the tournament? This was, uh, they were talking about the, the Dallas SCG con going on. I'm a longtime Storm player who dusted off Storm for FNM after seeing um, someone successfully challenged with it a few weeks back, but it didn't end well. Uh, Ross, I'm not the biggest fan of Storm right now in Modern.
1: I know you might not be either. Why is that? I've actually never been a big fan of Storm yeah, in Modern. Sure, I've sure. tried it several times, hoping that it would be good. Because you're a Storm guy. Yeah, I've always come away a little unimpressed. Um, in part because the deck is not particularly fast in my experience. Like, I see people win on turn three with it, and I just never do. And I don't know if I'm, like, doing something wrong, you know, Um I think what, one of the issues is that because you're reliant on on the creatures, Electromancer and Baral, you open yourself up to that avenue of interaction of your opponent just having creature removal in addition to having, you know, duress effects, counterspells, and then graveyard hate because you're playing past in flames. So it's one of those combo decks where like every single piece of hate kind of touches you and, or, and that makes it... Really easy for decks to prepare for you and always have a good, you know, six or eight cards in their sideboard that they can bring in. Now, the deck is quite resilient, uh, and part of that just comes from having a lot of good, um, you know, good card manipulation and the fact that it doesn't take a lot for you to just immediately go off. You know, if you, like, end step, bounce there, piece of graveyard, hey, untap, cast a creature while they're tapped out, and you have mana left over to start going off, you can do things like that. Um, I did see, you know, that I remember that ch- challenge list. I think it was plan- it was heavy on remand, which made sense to me at the time um, and still looks pretty reasonable given the way the metagame has changed since then. Um, but I just think it, in general, Storm is a little underpowered, um, you know, and it also is, uh, I think Storm is a lot better against discard spells than most other forms of interaction and discard spells are kind of at a low right now. Because of how prominent uh, Yorian decks are, n- namely four color blink, um, and how redundant the Cascade decks are, as they've had a resurgence. Like it's hard to just thought-seize away every every Cascade spell, especially because they often just cycle into it on their you know second turn. Um, so the fact that discard spells are at an all time low is also not a great thing for Storm, uh, because a deck with you know just a heavy amount of cantrips also tends to be resilient to discard. So. Uh, To me, it's going to need two things. One is uh, something to boost it in power level or alternatively uh, reduce its reliance on those creatures. Uh, And then also potentially a a change in the metagame and a shift back towards Thoughtseize Inquisition-style decks as opposed to, uh, you know, Counterspell, Archmage's Charm-style decks.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The next one, uh, I'm going to ask this question. I'll answer it first and say some stuff, and I'll let you consider how you want to answer or if you want to, because this is something that came up quite a bit on social media recently, a lot because of Jerry Thompson and what he said. And we can we can mention that as well. He made his rate known publicly of what happened at SCG. So this question comes from Yeoman Five. What's up Yeoman, by the way? Uh, What did you get paid per article at the start of your writing at the start of your writings? And what is your rate now? What is the bottom rate you consider acceptable for current TCG climate? So when I first started, um, I was a little more of a nobody than, you know, I am now, and compared to Ross, I'm, I'm you know, even less, right, you know, because you have a pedigree when it comes to stuff, you have a lot more followers on social media than I do, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I was getting paid somewhere between, I think it was like 75 and 100 an article, and I could get a little more of a bump if I took um, store credit, which a lot of the times I just took store credit, because it was, it was like significant, you know, I got like 135 or something, and I was like, yeah, just give me fetch lands or something, you know, at the time, it was like, I could turn around and sell these for, you know, to make as much if not more, right, and stuff. And, you know, it's free money for them, right? Um, I did feel like I was underpaid for how much work and effort I put in per week or per per whatever, biweekly, whatever it was for my articles. I feel like that's too little for the amount of time and effort that I put in per article, and that's mostly because my articles were not, like, newspaper blurbs. You know, nothing against, you know what I mean? It was more than, like, two or three paragraphs, right? It was, like, a a thought-out thing, like, here's a deck, Here's a list, you know. Here's paragraphs on like why I played it, what it's good against, et cetera, et cetera. Here's like a sideboard guide, right? Or, you know, a new set would be coming out. Here's my, you know, here's my top eight for the new set, or all the cards that I think are cool, and here's why. Here's why I would get these. Here's good, you know, the amount of time and effort that I was putting into it. I was making something like five dollars an hour, or something like that, when it all came down to it, right? It's just not enough, right? And it is a supplemental income thing for most people, which is nice, right? Uh, the bottom rate that I consider acceptable now probably like two or three times that, but it also, this is where it gets weird because I get this a lot when it comes to doing casting. Cause like, you know, I do casting is one of my main forms of income. And I know when I work for certain people or certain organizations, or I do certain shows that they're not going to meet my quote. Like I have a specific quote that I do and I'm trying to decide if I want to say the number or not, because like, I don't want to hurt anyone in any way that I do that because like I have, I have an hourly that I look for when it comes to shows, but of certain sizes and then it's different for, for some other ones. Like I know that if they can't afford me, I might be willing to, you know, Hey, look, I'll, I'll take less for you guys. You know, you're up and coming or I like you guys, or this is something I want to do. I don't have anything else going on. But the problem with that, when I start making all that public is then now I start getting lowballed If I start to go somewhere else, I'm like, Hey, like, This is my rate, and they're like, "Well, this is what we're offering," and like they've, you know, they know that I've I've taken that before, in the past, right? And I think it's very important in a space like this to know what you're worth, and for the love of God, listen. If you're not listening to anything else I say here, listen to what I'm saying now. When it comes to casting, writing, anything like this, fight for more money, and don't ever fucking do it for free, because whenever you do or you take. Any kind of pay cut, even though I just said I did that, Anytime you take a pay cut or you do something for free, you're not just hurting yourself. You're hurting everyone else in the industry that's also doing the same job because now they know they can get away with that. They know that they can do that. They know that they can get this stuff cheaper. Don't ever shortchange yourself if you can. Just try as hard as you can and fight for yourself and fight for every dollar that you're worth. That's the most important thing that I can say to you when it comes to this stuff.
1: Yeah. Um, on my side of things, um, when I first started writing for SCG, I got picked up in the middle of 2014, right after the weekend that I went uh, back to back, or you know, almost. And uh, if Hello, you remember darkness, back then, old after every Open weekend, Cedric would have somebody from the Standard Open and somebody from the Legacy Open write a tournament report. And the Standard one was called the Industry Standard, and the Legacy one was called Leaving a Legacy. I remember and, this, yeah and he picked me up to do the industry standard for that week and talk about the return of mono blue and the the different changes that I had made because mono blue hadn't been a big part of the meta game for the last few months and that was sort of his test run for me to see if he wanted to put me on the staff full time the article went well uh, so I started writing in July because that was June and it was a sort of a trial basis I believe it was I was I was writing bi-weekly. And somebody else was also bi weekly. So we, we sort of combined to be one slot. I believe the other person was Kent Ketter. Um, so, you know, another grinder at the time. And uh, I was getting 50 an article when I first uh, signed on. Um, you know, at the time I was just happy getting paid for, you know, doing things. Um, and at the end of that year, I got put on full time and they bumped me up to 100 an article, if I remember correctly. So I was, I, uh, you know, to me, I just felt like I was, you know, uh, n- that was sort of the start of it. I felt like that first, you know, half a year was more of a trial period again. Um, and then over the years, I would get occasional raises. I, th- I got bumped to 150, um, at like the next year, I think. And when I got moved, uh, I think that was the year I moved to, to SCG. And then when I moved to, to premium, I think they bumped me to 200. And eventually I got bumped to three and that was the most I was making per article. And I went for a couple of uh, several years at three and I didn't really rock the boat because we were also making 400 per episode of versus live, which was a lot. Yeah. And like uh, Tom had left and Brad had left. So it was just me and Todd doing versus. So like before we had four people, so you were only doing one episode a week. Um, and so, but then it became us doing every episode so I was making eleven hundred dollars a week just doing two episodes of verses and writing an article, and uh, that was plenty to live you know well in Roanoke, where my the cost of living is so low. But I was actually getting to the point where I thought I was underpaid for writing, and I was getting ready to ask for a raise when the pandemic hit, and then I was like, well, I can't really do that. Um, and uh, you know, our pay eventually got cut over the course of the pandemic, um, and pretty significantly uh but at that at my max I was making 1100 a week for the three pieces of content um so uh yeah as far as me now like I'm pretty happy trying to do things independently and not you know deal with that um mm-hmm. because one of the things uh, of being tied to scG meant like I always had to be wary of different sponsorships um you know if we were on a team trying to get sponsored for things because scG it, shortly after I moved to Roanoke they stopped sponsoring individual players for things. They had been doing it with, with the people they had there uh, for pro tours and stuff like that. But they they stopped that shortly after I moved in. And so, but you couldn't really like get a, you know, a TCG sponsorship for your pro tour team. If you're an SCG writer,
0: you and I had to pass up multiple, multiple sponsorships for this podcast.
1: Yeah. As well. Um, So like there's an added cost there that I've now, you know, realized exists uh, of, you know, of tying yourself to a certain brand, so I'm pretty happy just trying to see what I can do independently and how much I can make. So honestly, like I would, I would have to get a lot more than I think any site would ever give me because I'm pretty sure across the industry, people have realized that the content creators were a little bit overpaid for how much they brought in, um, and you know that's why I think you've seen uh, a lot of them you know move away. Like Channel Fireball moved away from content entirely, right? Or like or almost entirely. I think
0: they're still doing stuff. I'm not. They're sure. doing I some think they're stuff, rate. but like they,
1: they 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 cut down significantly. And yeah. I think a lot they of that... had a
0: cut like a while ago. Not, yeah. not oh, the yeah. same as when it started. Oh, yeah.
1: not not because, but, like... but I think there were similar reasons behind it. I think a lot of it was yeah. just like inflated costs, and they weren't seeing a return on the investment that they wanted to see. Yeah. And uh, you know, uh, and it is a business. Yeah, and they they were, it was a cost cutting uh, measure. So at this point, I'm pretty sure, like if I went around to different websites, like I might be able to get. That same rate that I was getting, you know, 300 an article or something. But I would want more at this point because there's just a hassle of being tied to them. And there's, you know, uh, there's a lot of freedom that comes with doing things independently that I value. And I want to see that through and see what I can do on on that end of things. So, you know, at this point, people would have to pay me to give that up. And that would cost, you know, a premium on top of what my normal rate would be.
0: Yeah, because like that's a good thing to point out. Sorry to interrupt you. Is yeah. like the is, is uh, opportunity cost as well, and like that's the thing that you know, if you're writing for like a smaller program or whatever or a smaller site or whatever, like you might not see that as much, right? But like you know, I thought about it. You know, when I one of the first times I moved from Las Vegas to Dallas to do you know full time casting, like I thought for what I signed up for, like the casting thing, that I was technically overpaid per hour. Right. with When I was working, you know, there's a long story there If like they asked me to do a bunch of other stuff after I got there. And I like I can't really say no, you know, if I like, already signed my contract and like while it wasn't in my contract, what am I going to do? Mo- like say no and move away when they fire me or whatever. But like I had to give up other opportunities. Right. You know, I was making more money in Las Vegas like doing the poker thing, but like I wanted to be a part of something, et cetera, right? So there's there's a lot of stuff to consider there and I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Than just than just the numbers, right? Yeah.
1: And I know, you know, there's gonna be a lot of people that look at the numbers and say, oh wow, you were getting four hundred dollars an episode uh for versus live and we were live for three hours, right? Yeah. And you could say, oh, you're getting paid $133 an hour. Like, well, one, you know, we had to get in early to, you know, prep and, and plan for the show. We had to, you know, actually prep the shows in advance and get deck lists in and figure out how we wanted to do those things. Um, so that there's, and granted, like, that's not much additional time. So you could say that we spent, you know, five hours, you know, directly working on an episode of Versus Live. Um, it was probably less than that for some episodes. Um, and more, it was more than that for previous season episodes where we're literally brewing deck lists (laughs) and putting in
0: probably like 10 hours of work for that. When it comes to, like I, I I would,
1: you know, I would spend an entire afternoon and evening, you know, just brewing lists for, for the week. And then I'd have a bank of them to draw from. And then when more cards came in, I would either adjust lists or or brew new ones as as needed. So at the end of, of a previous season, I would usually have 20 deck lists or so.
0: Do you mind if I interrupt for one second? Sure. So. I'll try not to ruffle any feathers or uh, try not to say anything bad here. But like when you're talking about that, you know, it comes down to like $133 an hour, whatever, yeah. blah, 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 blah. And there's some people that would be like, wow, you're massively overpaid or whatever. You talk about all the other stuff. That's about in line with what I get when I do flesh and blood, like when I do these big events. Right. But when you think about it, it's like um, I have to I have to get there. Right. I have a flight. I have a hotel. And right now, the way we're paid, we are paid a specific amount per day that we're actually working right so like if it's a if it's a if it's a a quote-unquote grand prix for everybody at home then i'm paid for saturday and sunday i'm not paid for friday which i'm traveling i'm not paid for a lot of times monday which i'm traveling you know sometimes i go home uh sunday night um the way we're paid right now is we're paid a flat rate and that doesn't include our flight or a hotel so sometimes it's cheaper sometimes it's more expensive like, uh, you know, we did indie like y'all did recently, and the hotels were massively more expensive than normal because, you know, um, what's it called? March Madness was going on, and the city was insane, right? But when I do other shows, like, I, I, you know, like, I did the SEG Con last weekend on Honorog's channel, right? Massive success, a lot of fun. I was making significantly less than an hour. But also, I was sitting in this chair at my house. I didn't have to travel anywhere. I didn't have to accrue any extra cost, right? I didn't have to wear pants, you know, like, there's all that stuff to it. And I can kind of just fire from the hip from that, right? Like, Magic's a little bit easier for me than Flesh and Blood is, right? It's not a new game that has recently joined. I'm still learning cards and matchups and stuff in Flesh and Blood, where in, like, Magic, it's like I have this dearth and wealth of knowledge to to, to, to draw from. Like you were saying, you know, like, you, you do all this work and you draw from that over the, a couple of them. So it's like, am I really overpaid? There's a lot of arguments that we're underpaid, actually, in some ways, because the job that we do when we do these things, when you do the writing, when you do the shows like you do versus live and you do the, the casting, I don't think people understand how difficult it actually is and how much work it actually goes into it. And then how specialized yeah, that it's job, job is. a job that very
1: few people in the world can do. Yeah. Because not only do you have to be very good at the game, you also have to be able to communicate your ideas effectively and write in a way that is entertaining. And there's there's plenty of really great magic players do it. that do it. you know yeah. just aren't great at writing articles. I'm I'm not very you good. Know, at it. C- C- Corey will actually admit it himself. There's a reason that he did video content, you know, as opposed to writing content. He liked doing it more, and he was better at it, and it, you know, yeah. and so that, that made sense. Um, but he's, he's he will freely admit that he's not a strong writer. I I happen to be, you know, I I've, I took uh, oddly enough, you know, getting a math degree helps you write. Uh, because you're just writing proofs, and it makes you very meticulous and uh, specific in your word selection. And then, you know, I, I had a history minor. So I spent years, you know, doing math and writing papers. Um, and, and that certainly, you know, helped me along in, in that end. But the other, th- the other thing that I think people, uh, you know, either discount or dis- disregard um, when it comes to this job is that you also spend a lot of time traveling to tournaments and participating in events. And for us, like, yeah, I enjoyed it. And there were nights when, you know, we would hang out and go out on the town, especially after the tournament was over. But maybe you missed day two and, you know, you went you instead of competing on Sunday, you, you know, you went out and did something in the city. But anytime like you were playing a tournament like that was work and you incurred a lot of cost on your own traveling to these events and uh you know trying to play in them at the end of the year when i did my you know when i'm doing my taxes for the most part, if I'm if I'm doing better than break even on those tournaments just from, you know, the amount of money I paid to, to travel to them and enter them and the additional food costs of eating out a bunch, uh, even though that's something I enjoy, that's something, you know, I definitely ate out more when I was traveling than I do yeah. when I'm at home. Way more. Yeah. Um, You know, all those additional costs weighed against the amount, just the amount of prize money that I received. You know, I would be happy to do better than break even to just be ahead there because that to me was just the – Part of the job that enabled me to do, to demand, uh, you know, a high base rate on the surface, because that's additional hours that are going into it. So when you factor that in, you know, it it looks a lot more reasonable to be getting paid $1,100 a week for what is nominally only, you know, 15, 20 hours of work. Uh, because there is you know the weekend of work that you're doing to play well in tournaments and there is you know time during the week where you're testing or you're watching streams to figure out what other people are doing you know pouring over a deck list much more than the average person would looking through league data and you know things and just really thinking about magic. you know at my peak, you know magic was my life. I was on the road 40 to 45 weekends out of the year. Uh, this this is like, let's say, twenty really 2014, 2015 uh, are the two real peak years when you I was. Li-
0: you lived, breathed, ate, yeah. drank, slept Magic, yeah. Yeah.
1: I was reading almost every article that was posted on any major website. Um, and I was talking with people all the time about different deck lists. I was testing, playing uh, daily events because there were no leagues back then on, on Magic Online. Um, and. You know, my time spent on social media was like posting my sealed build from a daily event and seeing what people replied with about it and, and things like that. So, um, you know, all of that work that I did that was unpaid at the time is now, you know, I viewed the, you know, high base rate as just repaying that, that work and effort that I put in as me, you know, finally drawing a return on it.
0: Yeah. And we could go into depth more of this and let us know at home. You know, tweet at us. Let us know in the Discord if you
1: want to hear more about this. Ross and I are perfectly willing oh, yeah. to talk more about oh, this. I, just... I can talk a ton about just the the uh, the un you know talked about parts of being a you know real really professional magic player and, and content <laughs> yeah. creator. Um, because uh, there's definitely uh, you know that there's definitely a lot of of benefits, but there are some you know downsides, significant downsides as well. So. Uh, and people tend to focus on the benefits and you, you got a lot of people telling like saying, oh, I'm so jealous. You're like living the dream. They only see you when you're doing well, by the way. Yeah. Like
0: that's, that's the only time they see and hear your name is like, oh, you're doing great in a tournament. You're cashing. Like they don't see the, the bad weekends and stuff.
1: Yeah. They also just only imagine like they're just saying, oh, I love magic and I play magic, you know, as often as I can. And that like, I would love to play more but they don't realize that there's another side of that coin when you're playing more magic than you would want to play (laughs) and -hmm. and you actually want to play less. Yeah. Um, And that like me. Yeah. yeah, To be a, a high level competitor and a professional, you have to be on that side of, of the equation as opposed to their side. Yeah.
0: So, yeah, we can definitely talk about more of this. We'll try to get it in next week's episode when we do our top eight and stuff as well. If you want to send us some questions and stuff into the Discord, we'll make sure that we get everything taken care of. Uh, this episode's also running a little long, so let's go ahead and end it here, and we'll get some more of this stuff done next week. Ross, if they would hear
1: more of you, where would they go? Uh, right now, you should go to my Twitter account. I'm at Ross Hunnids. That is the best place to keep abreast of my magic comings and goings. Uh, and there will be you know more of that in the in the coming weeks now that I'm going to... Uh, get back into the swing of things of real life uh, after the last few weeks when I've kind of been off uh, and vacationing. And uh, so, um, you know, that'll be a, a good place to follow and keep up with me. I'm going to be launching a Patreon soon, so that'll get announced on my Twitter. Um, and then, you know, with the relaunch of my stream will get announced there too. If you do want to get a notification on Twitch when the stream starts going live again, you can follow me there as well. I am Ross underscore Miriam. Um, no need to sub for me right now. Just to follow there will be great. Um, and I'll start begging you all to sub once I'm actually you know, doing work and deserve it. Uh, so th- that will be coming back soon. Uh, And then Twitter is a good place. And I guess that I used to have such a long rant for this. Now it's so much shorter. It kind of throws me sometimes. But yeah, I know. I'm I'm used to it. Yeah. yeah. Those two places are the two. Tannen, if people want to follow you with magic, with baseball, with flesh and blood, all the things you're doing, where can they find you? Uh, the
0: easiest and best way to find it is just uh, my Twitter at the Tan Grace. So make sure you follow me on there. Uh, baseball is coming. I will warn you. <laughs> well, baseball <laughs> is here. <laughs> I mean, like the tweets are coming. I haven't really had many of them so far, but it's it's going to start. It's it's the beginning of the year. I'm uh, I'm pacing myself. Yeah.
1: You're just you know, feeling same. everything out. Yeah. You know, we
0: know that the Mats aren't gonna keep winning. <laughs> well, I mean, I they're a good team. It's just like they're they're playing against bad teams right now and they're playing well. We're just playing like dog shit. And uh I, I did have a moment last night where I had to refrain from myself because one of the announcers in the Braves game said the four letter word I hate more than anything, which is Bunt. Yeah, they said bunt and I almost lost my shit. So um, anyway, I just love it when they're like, yeah, you know, it doesn't matter what analytics you believe in as, you know, a bunt here, but like, God, just stop talking, please get this guy out of the booth kind of thing. But anyway, uh, I love each and every one of y'all at home. Ross, you're okay. And we'll see all of y'all next week.